Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. song than we usually listen to here at the beginning, but that doesn't mean we don't have an exciting episode coming up. That was called The Slide by a group or a person called Costa, and it's from the 2012 EP Sunzal, and it's available on iTunes. Kind of fitting, though. It's it's We're a week post-Monster Bash, and that's always kind of the the post-Bash letdown, right? And it's I've been on vacation all week, so I've been busy... But I have been definitely in slow mode, I think, ever since we got back. Definitely. I'm sort of in a funk. I know a lot of people leave energized with new ideas and and things to do. I normally go through a little letdown period and then uh, get energized again. Nevertheless, good. Good feelings from Monster Bash. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the episode is our adventure to Mars. Part of that, of course, in the back half of this episode, we're going to be talking about what we listen to on the way home from Mars. A couple of audio dramas. We, I think we had, had toyed around this idea a couple of months ago and got kind of pushed off to this month. And I think it was good timing because we listened to The Slide from 1966 and Aliens in the Mine from 1977. We're talking Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. So these aren't your average audio dramas. These are our audio dramas in the sci-fi mode, but with horror legends and when we get to Aliens in the Mind, I mean, I, I will say it right now, that's a highly recommended one for the banter between Vincent Price and Peter Cushing alone. And I think it's probably something that a lot of people probably haven't heard. You probably think you've seen everything from Vincent Price and Peter Cushing, but have you heard everything from them? It's definitely something you need to to tune into. We'll be talking about that in the second half of our show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know a lot about old-time radio or radio dramas, and I know that's a particular interest of yours, so I'm interested in learning uh, from you. Uh, I might just sit back and listen a lot more than I normally do, believe it or not. We'll see if that really happens. So we listened to these. We had good intentions. We were on the way there, and you asked if we wanted to listen. And I was like, well, we're getting ready to have a lot going on. I might not really remember them after the bash if we do it now. So we waited until after. And you lock us in a car for 100 hours where all we do is talk. We barely got through them before we got home. I think we were listening to the end of the second one as we were literally rolling into Kansas City. Oh, well, um, we, we were almost rolling into our, our front <laughs> driveway, my front driveway. I, mean, I think we had maybe 
maybe 10 minutes to spare and we were lucky. So. Well, we got a little extra time because of our roundabout way of getting back into the city. Yeah, there's a little thing called construction and Richard not paying 100% to directions and then getting in kind of a spin cycle for about 15 minutes. So. And Jeff being of no help because, as we all know, that was past his bedtime and he was a little <laughs> bit groggy. But there was no such thing as a, a bedtime at, at Monster Bash. So yeah, that's what all we're going to get to. Uh, let's officially welcome everyone to episode 33 of the Classic Horrors Podcast. I will go ahead and call this meeting to order. And let's start off with welcoming our new members. We have four new members in the Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Welcome to Robert Salvato, Keith Martin, Jim Fitzsimons, and Ivan Rivera. We are glad to have you in the conversation on Facebook. Yes, welcome. We want to hear from uh, anyone uh, who's out there. We've got different ways that you can get in contact with us, whether it's uh, leaving feedback or Facebook or, I don't know, smoke signals. We'll take anything. It's always nice to see uh, new members, but we want to hear from you as well. Let us know your thoughts. What are we doing right? What do uh, you want to hear on the show? When we welcome you on that Facebook group, perfect opportunity for giving us a shout out and say uh, say what you what you like about the show and what you want to hear. And we do have some conversations that started last month with different things going on. First of all, of course, the new Godzilla King of the Monsters movie. And uh, Joe Carson, one of our most active, appreciated members on the Facebook page, uh, gave us his little mini review. He said, Okay, so I liked the movie okay, but was disappointed overall with the human side of the story and the director's insistence on cutting back to the non-monster action instead of saying, staying with the monster battles. I honestly liked 2014's Godzilla better than this one. Here's hoping Kong versus Godzilla is an improvement. I think that's interesting because I still heard from people that felt like there was still too much plot in this movie. There was some comments and I'm like, it was a huge improvement, I think, over the first movie. There there was a lot of plot in the first one and, and very little monster action. You definitely got a lot of monsters in this one. But I can see what he's saying is there were still some moments where they pulled away from the action but i don't know if it's any different than some of the older movies i mean if you think about even going back to the classic godzilla films there's there's times when mid-battle they they shift back to the plot or whatever maybe you know usually in those old ones it was some type of aliens or there was some type of spy crime drama going on they would cut away from the from the battle sequences i think we just got used to a 90 minute running time of those old movies and you know probably you know 45 minutes of it was monster action for the most part in some of those films and and with a longer running time audiences are going to zone out if they don't have at least some plot kind of think transformers transformers went heavy on the on the non-stop action and kind of light on the plot and modern audiences kind of drone out a little bit on that so i don't know i, I think it was a better mix uh, than what we got in the first one, but I can I can see where people were still thinking there's room for improvement, and, and we may get that with Godzilla versus Kong. I, I've heard that they might delay the release of that by a little bit to get it a little closer to the summer release season, and I don't know if that means they're going to try to uh, make a few tweaks behind the scenes to the the final finished film. I would suspect they might. Uh, based on some feedback, Godzilla was successful. 
I don't think it was as successful as they thought it was going to be in the box office, but that kind of goes, I think, post-Avengers. I think most of the films this summer season have performed under expectations. I've been watching each and every week, and pretty much every blockbuster film is coming out under expectations. So there's a lot of conversations about franchise fatigue. And you know some of these films like Men in Black International and Dark Phoenix, did we really need those films? Was anybody really wanting those films? Maybe Hollywood thinking we want them and the box office is showing otherwise. I think... I think the, the tide is kind of shifting to where audiences are wanting some more original ideas. They don't necessarily want to see franchise after franchise. Marvel's got that covered. They've cornered that market, and everyone's trying to feel like they need to copy Marvel. And I think maybe we need to go back to some to more standalone films or films that aren't necessarily an automatic start to a, a, a five or six film franchise. Just a, a, a side rant. I am probably more with Joe in the camp of this. I was less than wild with Godzilla. I, I won't say I was disappointed, but it just, I don't know, it lacked something for me. And I don't necessarily blame it on the too many characters or too much plot or the people. I, I don't know why. It just didn't quite work for me. I did like in the first one, that it did pull away from the action. You saw a lot of the action on TV screens or behind the people. I thought that was an interesting take. I don't think they did it as much in the second one. If they did, and I'm not recalling, I think that's a a technique that probably wears or wore out its welcome pretty fast. I would not be interested in seeing a lot more of that type of filmmaking. It was unique at first, but yeah, enough's enough. Uh, We want to see our big monsters fighting. I was surprised by... The role that I can't remember the actress's name, but the girl from Stranger Things, I, I would have thought she had a maybe a bigger role in the film. I mean, granted, she kind of plays a part in the climax of the film. I, I don't know. I, she she didn't have quite the role that I thought she was going to have, based on the the trailers and the teasers that were released. I was underwhelmed with her, not performance, but her role in the movie, uh, and that may have been just Hollywood marketing trying to capitalize on her presence in the film and trying to make it more of a thing than it was, knowing that Stranger Things is as popular as it is. Another movie that came out earlier uh, than Godzilla was The Curse of La Llorona, which you talked about on the Dread Media podcast, and you posted a link to that. We both post links to our other projects on the, the Facebook page. And Heinz said, I avoided it because of the critics' verdict, same old but without the care and thought that went into the Conjuring movies. In other words, Ghost of Frankenstein. thought that was kind of an interesting comment. I've never thought about it like that. I, you know, I don't think, I, I don't know if I saw that comment. If it's so, I don't remember it. That's actually a pretty good comparison, actually. I liked it. You know, the Conjuring universe is kind of a convoluted one, isn't it? Because you've got, you know, we're, we're now, how many Annabelle films in? Three, I guess. The new one just came out. And getting good reviews. And then we've got the Nun movie, and I guess the sequel to that's coming out. And then we have another Conjuring film finally coming out. Those I like the Conjuring universe. I've liked what they've created. I, I was less than pleased with the first Annabelle film, but I liked the second one a lot better. I'm interested in the third, which I know has appearances of the Warrens in it. Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. I liked The Nun for what it was. I know a lot of people didn't like it. I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it was... You know, not necessarily a classic, but it, it had a lot of atmosphere. 
it did resort in the final act to an over excessive amount of jump scares. I think it had a lot of atmosphere going into it, and then it just it got sidetracked and, and pandered to what Hollywood thinks audiences want, which is nothing but jump scares, which is fine in a film. That's where I think Curse of La Llorona actually did have some jump scares that legitimately made me jump. They were well-placed. Even though they were pretty well-choreographed, I think it was a combination of, of better filmmaking and, and some atmosphere and some good music, and it got me where I, even I knew that it was coming. But I, I liked that movie for, for what it was. Greatly forgettable. You know, it's not going to have a lasting impression. It's going to be that... Oh yeah, it's one of those films in the Conjuring universe, but I can't imagine that the first couple of Conjuring films I think have had a much bigger impact on modern horror than something like The Curse of La Llorona is kind of, I think it's more of a throwaway film, which is a lot of what we get in the horror genre these days is a lot of films that just kind of get thrown out there. They have probably one good weekend at the box office, maybe two, and then they're kind of forgotten. They come out on video and they don't really leave a lasting mark on... on the horror genre collectively. Another movie that's definitely not a throwaway is the original Thomas Edison version of Frankenstein. And our new member, Keith Martin, shared a post to, uh, I guess, a link to that on YouTube uh, with the headline, The Original Frankenstein Has Finally Been Restored After 108 Years. So we appreciate him sharing that. And you responded you had actually seen that on the big screen, the silent Silent Film Festival, or yeah. was it the Halloween thing? It was a Silent Film Festival. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they played they played that back in February, and yeah, the, the modern restoration is is really stunning compared to the horrible version that was out there for so many years, which was still you know amazing that we had it. But the little watermark logo is long gone from the person who claimed to have the rights to the film for so many years. They really didn't. They just had the only copy of it. That person, as I understand correctly, passed on, and the film has now been properly restored, and uh, it really is an amazing print. And it's out there on YouTube. I mean, what you see on YouTube is, I don't know that it's been given an official DVD or Blu-ray release yet, uh, and it may not, but it's out there um, on YouTube and other sources, and uh, it was what they showed at the film festival, and it really is uh, stunning compared to what we had to watch for a lot of years. But I do want to remind everybody, if that's how you'd like to provide feedback, which we would love to hear and we'd love to play on the show, is you can call our number, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Please feel free to, to leave your comments, good or bad. You could also record something on your phone and send us an MP3. Lots of ways you can get hold of us. And uh, the more feedback, the more people we have involved, I think, the more diverse and exciting our show can be. It's Bill Mize over at the Bill Watches Movies podcast, and I'm really glad to be able to give y'all a call and discuss something that is near and dear to our hearts, Monster Bash. This most recent one was my very first Monster Bash. And I got it started off right by meeting Ron Adams on Thursday afternoon. He welcomed me, he shook my hand, and it was just really nice to meet the man behind Creepy Classics and Monster Bash. He and his staff, I think, are really doing Godzilla's work on this earth. The volunteers did a great job the entire convention, keeping us all herded like cats with a cowbell and moving from appointment to appointment. Now, on Friday, 
Things kicked off with meeting my boy Derek at Monster Kid Radio and some of the guests he's had on the show in the past. I got to meet Steve Turek, Chris McMillan, Dominique, and of course Joshua Kennedy. More about him later, of course. A big highlight for me on Saturday was meeting David Colton and the guys and the girls on the classic horror film boards. Now, most people out there know David from his work on The Rondos, but I actually know David from the AOL. Now, for you whippersnappers, that's an ancient service called America Online. I know him from the AOL Universal Monsters message boards, and that was in the 1990s. Yeah, Colton and I go way back, I guess you could say. Probably further back than both of us would like to admit. But as Derek would say, this is my Monster Kid tribe, and I'm glad that I got to meet folks and put faces and names with avatars, so to speak. Now, Saturday night was the premiere of Joshua Kennedy's The House of the Gorgon, and y'all and I both know how freaking awesome that was. It was funny, but like when I first met Joshua, you know, I saw the top hat, I saw a young man, but I didn't really put two and two together. But after seeing his movie, I really had to take a step back and think about just how accomplished he is and what he's done with his life, at least from an artistic point of view so far. I wish him the best, and I look forward to hearing what he's working on next. That guy's got a bright future ahead of him for sure. As we discussed briefly via email, it looks like our collective shyness and busy with other thingsness got the better of us, and we didn't get to meet. Now, I've booked my room for next year's bash yesterday, so let's not let that happen again, okay? I wish you two grand poobahs of the Classic Horrors Club all the best until next summer, when the wolfbane blooms and we all head to Monster Bash again. Please keep in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And please holler if you need anything at all. I am your Huckleberry. Take care. We'll talk to you later. So, Richard, shall we hop in the car and head east on a journey to Mars? I'd rather have Jeannie blink us there. <laughs> that, that was a long drive. But, uh, yes, absolutely, I'd love to go back to Mars. And it's funny because the trip there goes in the blink of an eye. The trip home drags on. I think it's that breaking it up because we made it as far as Indianapolis the first night. And then Friday morning, you know, it was... Uh, a little longer than it was uh, Thursday night, but still, that breaking it up and, and the anticipation, the excitement, uh, and you're refreshed and you're ready to go. By Monday, I think you and I were both kind of dragging. We were uh, definitely down in the caffeine on the way home, and, and uh, luckily we had good weather. And uh, But by that point, you're on that bash. The bash high can only keep you going for so long, and, and as the day progressed, we were dragging, so... Uh, the, the drive there is always a lot quicker than the drive home. And we were on a mission on Friday. We got up bright and early. We wanted to get to the bash by 2.30 so that we could hear the Q&A session for actor Christopher Neem. And we made it just perfect time. Yeah, we, we squeaked in at 2.19, I think, in the parking lot. So just enough time to wave to a few people run into the bathroom and, and get our seats, and, and we made it. And it, uh, it was an awesome way to start off the bash. Yeah, he was a very personable gentleman. Uh, we will play some clips from the Q&A here in a few minutes, but anything that uh, stands out for you on 
his Q&A or just meeting him outside the Q&A? You know, I've met so many people over the years getting autographs and, and going back to the 90s. And, and one thing, you can always kind of tell if the person is cashing a paycheck to, to sign the autograph or if they genuinely are enjoying their interaction with the fans. I can say that everyone that I met at the bash and, and everyone that I saw in the Q&A, they all genuinely wanted to be there. And that was very evident with Christopher right off the first, first you know, he was engaged in, in the Q&A and uh, then equally as engaged to the fans who came to his table. He was very appreciative of everyone who, who came to his table. Uh, I know both you and I got his autograph and I even got the bonus because I got Caroline Monroe's autograph because uh, her daughter, actually it's her stepdaughter I found out, but her daughter was there working the table with him and there were some pre-signed photos that she brought back from her mother and so I was able to get both hers and Christopher's autograph on the sign on the same eight by ten. That was a nice little bonus I wasn't planning on. I know you are still hoping to see Caroline in September at the Crypticon in Minneapolis, and I'm not as convinced that I'll be able to make that. So I took the opportunity to get this, and it was a nice, nice plus. And he was very, uh, very appreciative. And actually, she was very nice. Her daughter uh, Tammy, I believe, was her name. Very, very nice. Very personable. And I didn't know. That <laughs> that she was uh, that she was related at first until I kind of caught a few words that were said and then they did later on uh, in the the weekend um, introduce her as her daughter when they uh, presented her with her mother's Rondo Award. David Colton was there giving out the awards and I think that was Saturday night I believe I think they were giving yes. those out just around midnight. And so uh, she was there to accept that for her mother, and that was nice. But, uh, yeah, Christopher was, was fantastic. I wasn't sure I was going to get an autograph from him. You know, I went with a budget, but I knew right off the bat I had to do that because I was impressed with, with how he handled the Q&A and just his overall, uh, again, like I said, his overall uh, excitement at being there and meeting the fans. Yeah, and the audience, when anyone asked a question, he always wanted to know what their name was, and he would either yeah. interrupt yeah. or not answer the question until they said what their name was. So when we went to his table to get his autograph, I was sure right from the beginning to say, Hi, I'm Jeff. So <laughs> he wouldn't have to ask me for my name. That's true. He he And he wanted to know uh, my name as well before he even signed any of the autographs and, and didn't even know if it was going to be personalized or not. And I think that's the first time I've ever encountered that. I can't think of anyone else who's ever wanted to know the name of the person they were talking to. So that's a, a very nice touch because he's showing that he's interested, truly interested. And he's not someone, honestly, I don't think I've ever seen his name at another convention here in the States. You know, I'm sure he has done conventions before, maybe over in the UK. I'm sure he's even been here in the States. But not one that's very prevalent. I don't think he gets around as much here. It was an honor to meet him. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, he was a true English gentleman. Very polite, very professional, very nice. Well, let's play a few clips from that Q&A, and we'll be right back to see what happened after that. What inspired you to become an actor? How did you get your start in the business? At school, you see, I did it all like that. I acted a lot at school. And um, when I was very young, when I was in like, well, 12, 13, when I was a teenager, and, uh, of course, academically, I sucked completely. And, uh, but then I... It's a long story, and, and I don't really want to go into it too much, but it just sort of happened, you know? I just... And I think about it now, you know? And I think, I 
I'm so glad that I didn't sort of waver and think, well, maybe I'll give it a try. I don't know. No, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I just went for it, you know? I, my first job was at the Oxford Playhouse as a, stu as a student assistant stage manager on three pounds a week. It's about five bucks a week. And I didn't need money because I was working so hard and I just went back to my digs and slept, you know, and it worked and slept. That's all I did. And um, so that's what got me started. And then, of course, Codis, the series, which took off. Um, amazingly, it was just the right kind of time for that, you know. Some people really wanted that. And uh, just whoo, bang, you know, it sort of happened very quickly. And uh, I was off and running. I want to ask you about Hammer's Lust for a Vampire. How was it to work with the casting That's crew? for a vampire. Yeah, the casting crew of that movie, including the late, uh, the late great, greatly missed Ralph Bates and Jut Stenskar. How was it to work with them? Jut Stenskar? Right, yes. Really? Yes. Um, I, I, I really. I, I can't really remember too much about that. It was about 300 years ago. Um, uh, I was very excited to be part of the Hammer, um, you know, s uh, situation because I knew they were very sort of uh, very big in those days, very sort of out there. And then, of course, from there, I was cast as Johnny you know. Um, I really can't remember too much about that. No, I like Ralph Bates enormously. He's a really good guy. My absolute favorite death scene in all the Hammer movies is your death scene in '82. Oh. How many takes did that require? Very few. But but here's the thing. I had a dinner date with a rather special lady at the end of the shoot. <laughs> and, um, for some reason, the makeup crew all had dinner dates as well. And so to get all that stuff off my face would have taken forever, but they kind of left me there. And uh, so I, it, it, you know, that was the end of that date. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was extraordinary, it was kind of weird, you know, and I see the photographs now and I think, oh, wow. But, um, no, I, I, uh, I don't know, just part of my job, really, you know, just, uh, just doing that. And, um, Stephanie Beecham, I have a history with Stephanie uh, in that sort of relation-wise. I, uh, uh, brother-in-law, she was married to John McHenry at the time. And uh, a pretty, pretty, uh, uh, in uh, Zephyrelli's Romeo and Juliet. I think he was Mercutio, yes, he was extraordinary, amazing actor. I worked with a brother in law, Peter McHenry, um, twice. I played Forty Brass, you know, in Hamlet. Uh, with Peter, and then I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company with Peter, and uh, very, very, very talented men. Uh, and Stephanie, I got to know a little bit, not too much, because we were very busy on the set, you know. And I met her in Los Angeles um, when she was out there doing the Google I think she was doing the Google that's right, yes. And um, 
very, very clever woman, very talented, beautiful, of course. And uh, no, she's a favorite of mine, very much so, yes. Yes, well, Pete Cushing, it was very touching, because Pete Cushing just lost his wife, who he was devoted to before the shoot. And um, he was very, very, very sad throughout the shoot. But because we were also young and vibrant and very sort of energetic, um, he said at the end of the filming, he said, uh, you guys got me through because of your energy, because of your, you know, because you were all so together as a group and, 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 and really got me back in the groove. It was very touching. He did pretty cushing. He smoked. He smoked cigarettes, a lot of cigarettes, and he didn't want to get any nicotine on his hands for the, you know, to go on camera. So every time he... Uh, shooting stopped, he would sit in his little deck chair, put on his white gloves, <laughs> smoke a cigarette, and then take his white gloves off and go back to set. He was very sweet, real gentle. I had a fight scene with him, and he was strong as a lion. He was 85. I was 23. He was so fit. He was wonderfully fit. Dear, dear, dear gentleman. Christopher Lee, on the other hand, just very to himself, very sort of poised and very kept himself to himself and then walked on to the set and then was Dracula, you know. <laughs> he was an um, extraordinary man. Very, very great. Hey, this is Jeff butting in. In the last question, somebody asked what it was like reuniting with his Hammer co-stars to make House of the Gorgon. Terrific. Just great. We didn't shot it in a week. And uh, Josh was just wonderful. He knew everything that he wanted and he managed to get it out of us all. And um, yeah. Yeah, we shot it, we shot it in a week. Unbelievable, I've never shot so quickly, but in, in such a, uh, a very relaxed way, you know, we were all born and we, we got it done. And I hope, uh, I hope it shows, you know, and all our hard work shows. It's just great. Yeah, we're joining all the The uh, audiences at these Q&As, I think we've all been to conventions where that person gets up and asks a question that's totally ridiculous. I, there's not that many of those. There were a couple that I thought, oh, really? You know, I, I, I don't want to know about that. But they were reasonable. That was more me than them. Generally speaking, the audience that you get at Monster Bash, it's of higher quality. Um, and I guess probably because we're dealing with monster movies, you're dealing with a much smaller audience admittedly than if you go to like a planet comic con where it covers you've got everything from people who are interested in comics to anime to whoever the big stars are you know to gosh a gazillion different topics star wars and uh, cosplay and what have you and invariably with a bigger convention you got more people Quite frankly, you're going to run across those people more yeah. than you are with Monster Bash had a good crowd not as big as it was two years ago, especially on Saturday two years ago. It was it was very, very crowded. We didn't quite have that crowd, but we had a really good crowd. I mean, I think pretty much every Q&A or every session in the movie room was 
pretty much full. You might have been a, a few seats in the far, far back available, but I know several of them were, you know, standing room only. So a uh, really good crowd, I think, overall. Again, not as quite as big as two years ago, but um, still pretty impressive for a genre where we got to admit, not only the, the guest stars, but the fans are getting a little older and some people might not be able to travel as much as they used to. So it's nice that we've got the stars who are still able to travel and, and come to come to Mars. It's still nice to see the young people in the crowd, in which we saw several of them. There were several young people, in particular when the we'll talk about it, I'm sure we get to the Tom Weaver uh, trivia contest. There was a couple of uh, young, really three young people up on the stage that did remarkably well. And I know that the one who got off stage eventually did get a prize later on so all three of them got prizes and well earned they watched there was a lot of questions on that one about a 1932 boris karloff film mask of fu manchu how many 10 year olds are going to watch an old movie let alone a black and white movie let alone a fu manchu movie and then answer trivia questions on it. Pretty impressive. One more thing I want to say, and I'm sorry I meant to say this earlier about Christopher Neem. Another thing with audience questions, there's so many of what was it like to work with this person? What was it like to work with that person? And I'd like to see a little more focus on the person itself that's there. You know, what is their background? How did they get involved? So I did take the opportunity to ask Christopher Neem uh, at his table. And I don't know if it was the first time or the second time because I got a second signature that I had everyone sign the House of the Gorgon poster. But I asked him, did you have to, how did you get hooked up with Hammer? Did you have to audition? And maybe this is why people don't ask that. You know, it's been many, many years ago for a lot of these people who never thought they'd ever this many years later be talking about these movies. And, you know, he quite honestly didn't remember. He said he was sure he probably had to audition but it had been so long ago, uh, he didn't really remember exactly how he got into to making uh, two films that he made for Hammer. You know, I, I think maybe one reason why they kind of jump right into the audience Q and you know Q and A part portion is because these typically run about twenty five minutes. They're scheduled for thirty, but they go twenty five to allow people to get up and out before the next thing starts. Whereas with most other bigger conventions they're given like 45 minutes to an hour i had any feedback you know i do agree i i I think some of the moderators it'd be nice if they maybe started off with a a few more personal questions rather than just quickly diving into the faq but i also understand the reasons that there's a very limited amount of time so you gotta kind of jump right in there and try to get as many people to get their questions in the only other feedback i would have is that it'd be nice if they had a portable microphone so that the people in the audience would be able to speak into a microphone and ask, you know, the questions so you could, everyone in the room could hear. Um, sometimes, depending on the moderator, they might repeat the question. I know they did for Victoria Carlson's, but uh, other times you just kind of had to really hear uh, what was going on. You really kind of had to pay attention. So that'd be another little feedback. It'd be nice if they could do that. And I don't know if there's limitations with equipment or what have you, but it might be nice to, to add that to, to future bashes. But yeah, they've been doing this a long time. They're not asking you and I for our opinion. So that's just a, a and these are nitpicking because it oh, is, yeah. it's wonderful as is. I Absolutely. Mean, that's, it's a nitpick because the Q and A's are still, they're better than the average Q and A at a lot of other conventions I've been to. And again, like you said, you don't get those questions 
very very rarely do you get a, a question that just kind of like really that's what you asked most of the time they're thoughtful questions uh, again because the time is limited and, and people are putting a little thought into it because they're not getting a chance to see these people all the time and i think quite frankly nine times out of ten the people that are watching these older movies they're more thoughtful about the experience not saying that that you know younger stars and, and younger audiences aren't but I just think you get a, a different caliber of, of fans who attend Monster Bash. So what else did we do? Well, I did want to give just a quick mention that we did miss the Q&A for Beverly Washburn. I would have kind of liked to make that, but, you know, we, there was just no time. We would have had about three hours sleep to make that happen. But she was, of course, in uh, Boris Karloff's Thriller. She was in Old Yeller. She was in Spider Baby. I was uh, impressed that she had generally people at her table all weekend long. Um, she, of course, was in Star Trek The Deadly Years. And had I had the extra money, I would have got her autograph, but I didn't. But I did notice that every time I went by, um, she was talking to somebody and seemed really, really engaged with the fans. So even though we didn't get a chance to, to see her, it looked like she was as equally as engaged as, as the other stars there. Following that, we, we had to take care of some business, checking into the room and all that fun stuff. But uh, the next thing we did catch, we didn't end up planning to go to the talk about uh, the creature. However, we did definitely want to see the monkey's paw, so we went in a little early, and I it, they must have been running late. I feel like we caught a good portion of that talk. Well, he creature. talked until we got there at 7.45, and he was talking until 8.15-ish. So we got a good 30 minutes of that presentation. I don't know how late he started, but we, in the very least, probably would have caught about half of it. And it, I, you know, I do wish we would have caught all of it because what I saw was really entertaining. Because because uh, Frank does an interesting thing where he takes a look at what happens to the characters after the movie based on what the actors, you know, some of the other film roles that they did, and tried to tie in some of their post creature film roles into their characters' roles and what they would have done after the movie. It's interesting. I've never seen anyone really approach it that way. And so, yeah, we, we caught about half of that, and that was a lot of fun. And that's Frank Delastrito, by the way. Yes, and, and you picked up a couple of his books. Yeah, so I went to talk to him later, and uh, he had written A Werewolf Remembers the Testament of Lawrence Stewart Talbot. Gosh, it was out the uh, last time we were at Monster Bash. So I, I asked him, how far behind was I? He said only two years. So I did buy that. He autographed it. Uh, they're numbered, so he logged it in his notebook of, of what number. And then he, he kind of talked me into his new book, Carl Denham's Giant Monsters. And these, like you said, he takes uh, he builds a fictional story around these characters using the actor's likeness from other movies to show you know family history and what happened to them after that and after this and it's just a fascinating way to handle that i believe so that's that's what he does also with carl denham's giant monsters uh it's goes beyond king kong although that is part of it and uh, he's working on a third one he did not reveal the uh, subject matter but it will be in the same style and then he hopes to have a a box set that he can sell of the three interesting entertaining imaginative creative enjoy him uh, very much his slideshows and his, his speaking so i'm glad we caught most of that and these are nice sized books aren't oh, they oh man yeah i don't i don't know how many pages but yeah thick but nice printed you know 
well done with dust jackets and everything. There. Yeah, they're they're kind of on my my long wish list of things. I, I I know that everything I've I've heard about him, and of course now having heard him speak, definitely makes me want to get those books even more. Five hundred and eleven pages, by the way, for uh, Werewolf Remembers. That's a, that's that's a nice size book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a, a good doorstop. Next up was the uh, modern day premiere. I don't know of anywhere else that this film has been shown. Uh, the Monkey's Paw from 1933. This has been a lost film for, for decades. Uh, a print surfaced, and it's the the it's an American film dubbed in French with English subtitles. I believe currently in the possession of historian Tom Weaver, who's author also an author, has written several books for McFarland Books. So this comes from his personal collection. I don't know that this film is available anywhere else. I've looked. It's not out there on the internet. It's not even out there on bootleg copies. I really enjoyed seeing it. I'm going to write about it in a forthcoming article on the blog. I'm going to do a compare and contrast between it and the 1948 Monkey's Paw, which I picked up a few years ago. It was a very rough copy. Ran roughly about an hour, a little less than an hour. It's dark in places. It's a pretty rough print. I thought it was really interesting. I, any opportunity to see this rare film, I'm going to enjoy it just for the experience alone. It looked to be a pretty packed house for the, for this film. A lot of people were talking about it. Like I said, it was rough, and the story itself, you know, it, it fleshes it out. I thought rather well, uh, with some kind of uh, an explanation of kind of where the paw came from in more detail than than we've typically is present in the story or in other versions of the film. Uh, although I really can't remember the 48 version of the film, so I, I'm going to have to rewatch that. I'm anxious now to watch it having just seen the 33 version. But uh, what did you think of The Monkey's Paw? Oh, I enjoyed it. I am struggling now to remember much detail about it, but I, I remember enjoying it. And that's the kind of thing I like to see in Monster Bash. I have a hard time going that far with as many other exciting things that are, that are going on to sit and watch a movie that I can watch at home. But something like this that you can't, you can't get it for your own library. I enjoyed that and I enjoyed this movie. There's, there's so much going on and, and sometimes just sitting out in the lobby and talking with people that you talk to virtually all year long, but this is a chance to just sit down and talk to them face to face. I'd rather do that than watch a film in, in, the, uh, in the movie room that, as you said, we have at home and we can watch any time. The difference, the only exception being the, the drive-in movie on Saturday night. I always think that's a fun experience. But, yeah, Monkey's Paw was a lot of fun. And, and I I hope at some point that it becomes available one way or another out there. And, and uh, you know, hopefully it, it makes its uh, way into my collection at some point. But it was it was a lot of fun. And like I said, I'm going to rewatch the 48 version and then sometime in July, I'm going to do kind of a compare and contrast. I don't know if there's any other film versions. I know that there's adaptations that were maybe uh, anthologies. I know there's one on um, YouTube that's actually a filmed presentation of like a, a stage play that I don't know anything about. Because I know whenever I've looked for Monkey's Paw, that one always seems to pop up or the 48 version pops up. So... Yeah, I feel like it's a, whether it's called The Monkey Paw or not, it's a very, very common uh, setup for a movie. You know, you've got your three wishes and they never turn out the way that they're intended. And yes, those, be careful what you wish yes, for. Yes, those, I, I, those are fun movies. I, I like that. And it was 
I like seeing this early version of that story. Well, right after that, we, we kept our seats and went right into a episode of Way Out, presented by author Martin Grahams. I'm familiar with Martin. I know you said you really weren't much. He is an old-time radio uh, aficionado. He's got a, a website or blog that uh, he does a lot of interesting articles on vintage television and old-time radio. He's written several books. I've got one of his books uh, on the Shadow radio series that is incredibly thick and incredibly detailed. He was on hand to talk a little bit about Way Out. Didn't talk too much. They wanted to kind of get caught up on time, in which I think they did. Way Out, if, you, if you've never heard of Way Out, essentially it's a short-lived anthology series from 1961, hosted by Roald Dahl. It's a uh, low-budget, kind of a quirky little series that uh, I'm not even sure... Well, I think all the episodes exist. He said that there was, was it the Paley Center, I think is what he mentioned, has copies of all the episodes. So if you live in New York, you can go there and watch them there in like a private viewing room or whatever. Not all of them are commercially available. They're out there. They're a little harder to find, and the quality is not going to be as good as, say, The Twilight Zone, which is what it came right after in 1961. But I enjoyed it. And, and what they presented, uh, an episode called... Uh, Sideshow? Sideshow, yes. That was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. I instantly recognized the star, Murray Hamilton, who I know from Jaws. But, you know, of course, a younger, thinner, darker-haired Murray Hamilton. So that was entertaining. And his wife, who was sort of a nagging, you know, wife that he obviously was not in love with but you know couldn't get out of the relationship she was so familiar to me i had a feeling i knew who it was but you know it's one of those times where i needed the credits to you know reinforce my thoughts and it was indeed doris roberts yeah who most people probably know for everybody loves raymond but uh, she was on my all-time favorite sitcom ever soap and was plays the same kind of character you know every time but talk about younger and thinner and darker haired it was hard to recognize her physically but just the way she spoke and her mannerisms i thought it was really cool to see her in that i had no idea beforehand that she was going to be in it yeah i don't even think i'm looking at the uh, the guide and they don't make reference to her being in it it's always fun to see those stars that we know from their modern uh, tv appearances or film appearances then see like an early appearance where you kind of have to do a, a second guess and, and of course we got that in Revenge of the Creature, right? You get a little pre-early, early uh, Clint Eastwood uh, clip in that. That's kind of fun to see young stars. So, yeah, way out if you've never heard of it. Seek it out. Uh, you can find most of them on YouTube. Uh, it's a fun series to check out, especially if you like anthology series and you think you've seen them all. Uh, well, way out is, is something else. And, and, again, for 1961, to me, it felt more like a 1950s television quality. Like, say... Was it Tales of Tomorrow or Lights Out or Suspense, some of those early TV anthologies? It felt like you were watching something from that era, not as recent as 1961. I think that's probably why it didn't last that long. It was a pretty low-budget show. Well, and especially since for the few episodes that it aired, it actually followed The Twilight Zone on CBS on Friday nights. And comparing the two... Yeah, there's no comparison. No, because it just it, the budget wasn't anywhere near. Uh, I think the quality of the stories, you know, kind of hard to say. I've seen some others. They're definite uh, Twilight Zone quality. 
they just didn't have the the budget or production values that Twilight Zone did. Definitely worth checking out. We took a bit of a break after that, and then it was time for tacos and burritos with a Mexican monster night. And I swear, when we went two years ago, they threw those at us. I wonder if someone got a burrito in the eye or something, because they came and very carefully handed you your choice of either a taco or a burrito. They were going up and down the rows. They did not do that two years ago. Nothing better, I guess, than a a soggy burrito at midnight or 11 o'clock as it was. Uh, I don't know. Fun to go along with a movie that was probably equally as... as, uh, I don't know, soggy or as moldy, but (laughs) equally as fun, I think. uh, The Ghost in the Monastery from 1934. Spanish, no subtitles. What'd you think? Well, you'll have to you'll have to say what you think because I did not last very long. I I gave it a good try, and I wasn't necessarily getting sleepy because it was very very late. But I just I didn't really know what was going on. And that's fine if there's a lot of action or if you can really tell. But there was a lot of sitting around a long table with a bunch of characters and they're all talking in Spanish. And I got too fidgety and I had to get up and and go. So you take it from there. What the <laughs> heck was that all about? I will say that it's an incredibly atmospheric film. Another thing, it's always fun to see these films that aren't readily available. And I've really, in the last... Uh, three to five years really started to become interested in Mexican horror films and there's so many out there Santo films in particular they're hard to find and when you find them they tend to be a little on the pricier side so if you want them with subtitles you know you kind of have to just be patient and, and uh, you'll find them and this particular one is one that I was aware of a couple years ago oh gosh probably four or five years ago maybe because uh, Juan Juan Ortiz uh, from the B-Movie cast, he was talking about the fact that he was working on the subtitles for the film. And, uh, in fact, he had a version ready to be played uh, Friday night with subtitles, but for one reason or another, Ron Adams did not want to play that because they had already announced that they would be playing the movie without subtitles. That doesn't make sense to me, but, again, wiser minds than me were running the event. It didn't make sense to one either, but I had a chance to talk to him on Saturday, and he kind of filled in the gaps behind this movie. Watching a film without subtitles is difficult, um, so you kind of have to just... You can understand certain parts of the plot, but he there were certain things I had no clue what was going on, and he certainly helped with that. And then actually, I think it was on Sunday, I think even our conversation with Ken Blows, who was there, he even filled in more so on some of the story. The good thing is is that uh, Juan does have it available. He doesn't have an ups- a website up and running, but I do have contact with him now. He's given me his new contact information. So um, he has the movie and a semi-related monk film from the same time period with subtitles uh, available. So you can get both of those films. If, and I will get, be getting it at some point. I liked it enough that I want it in my collection. Atmospheric film, basically think monks kind of an old dark house but in a monastery and ghosts and kind of a nice twist ending and some some definitely some creepy imagery that uh, I think made for a lot of fun at the end of a very long day it was uh, it was a lot of fun to be watching that film again with a lot of people who everyone was as lost as we were <laughs> with exactly what was going on with a few exceptions but it was uh, it was a lot of fun and I, I if you get a chance to 
to see it or, or track it down. If you if you like Mexican horror flicks and you like old monster flicks from the 30s and 40s, it's definitely something you're going to enjoy. No luchadors, though. No luchadors, no Santo, no wrestling. They, You know, people think Mexican horror, they automatically think every movie's got wrestling or Santo in it. No, there's a lot of other Mexican horror films that don't. And typically, a lot of those, though, are from the 50s and 60s. I don't know of too many... Mexican horror films from as far back as the 30s. This is probably one of the rare exceptions. So, again, which which I think kind of made it all the more fun. Well, I had fully intended to go up to bed at that point, but, you know, you walk out in the lobby, you see a friend, or and you want to start talking. Oh, I got a second wind really fast, so I came back in there and met you after the movie for the Monster Bash game show. And that was a lot of fun. It was a, a variation of What's My Line, where they had three contestants uh, that were trying to guess you know, a particular monster that someone else in the audience had told, and they had written on a big card and showed us who it was. And that was fun. Josh Kennedy was one of the panel, I guess. I don't remember who else. Anyone else we know? I wasn't there. I, you weren't? I, no, I left. Oh. Remember, I you walked in, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. I, I'm tired. And, and That's I, right. I, I retired to the room. I needed to unwind a little bit before going to bed. So I, I pooped out. You know, 12, 12.30 was my limit for that long day. But uh, I don't... I Wasn't Derek a contestant? He yeah, he did. He gave a name uh, that was that they were trying to guess. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I forgot you weren't there. That That's another thing I just kind of wanted to do because it's unique and it's original to Monster Bash. And uh, we there's a couple of these other game shows they do as well. We'll talk about that when we get to it because I think you went to the other one. The, the Brain Twist? Yes. Yes, yes. I did. Yes, okay. I did. All right. That was pretty much it for that day then. What do you recall we did the next day? Saturday was our busiest day of the three days. We were going pretty much from from morning until night, and there was a lot of good stuff going on. I attended an event that you did not, and uh, I wish we I would have had your sound equipment to record the Q&A. Should have been thinking ahead of time, but I attended the Q&A for Sharon Moffat. Now, she was uh, a stock player at RKO Pictures, and... She worked with Boris Karloff in The Body Snatcher from 1945, amongst other films. She was also in uh, Mr. Blanding's Bill's Dream House with Cary Grant. And I had met Sharon Friday, got an autograph from her. I had tracked down a copy of a Body Snatcher uh, poster uh, that was really unique, very colorful. She had never seen it before. She was incredibly nice. She's an older lady, obviously. I mean, she was a young girl in 1945. You know, she she charged me $5 for an autograph, which I think I'll never get an autograph as cheap as that unless someone does one for free. She was incredibly alert for her Q&A. Uh, again, some of these older stars, they, they don't remember all the details, and uh, she did. And she she uh, commented on, on Boris Karloff and, and Cary Grant commented about how Cary Grant and her had a moment where they were like he walks in on her because she played his daughter and she the scene required him to walk in on her in the bathroom and she said you know daddy and they couldn't get through the scene when she came out without laughing at each other for countless takes he even gave her a uh, birthday party at the Trocadero I think which is a famous spot in in uh, California and uh, maintained contact with her for, for quite a few years. He was kind of like an uncle to her. Yeah, she had remembered a lot of details, how polite uh, Boris Karloff was, and it was a really good Q&A. 
she was only there for the first couple of days, and I don't think she got as many people at her, at her table, but possibly because she's, I think this is her third Monster Bash, because she, I think she attended both last year, and she's attending both this year, because she lives in the area, and she spent most of her life with her Hollywood career behind her. Her brother, I can't remember his name, but he was in Robot Monster, hmm. and when Ron Adams brought him there a couple of years ago, he, he you know, had said, well, I'm trying to get you know your sister, and he was like, well, she won't do these conventions. And then to realize that she literally was only you know mere min- minutes away and eventually agreed to meet with Ron and came to the convention. And now she was incredibly appreciative of the fans, and she said you know, she absolutely loves coming to these events and, and reliving a part of her life that she had had essentially buried for decades. So I really enjoyed that Q&A. She's an incredibly nice person. So if you're listening to this and you're going to the October Monster Bash, I believe she'll be a guest there. Well worth your time to, to catch the Q&A if she does one and uh, swing by and, and, and talk to her because this is one of our few connections to Universal Horror Films. I know they're, I think they're getting the other two young stars as well in the fall. I think they're bringing back Donnie Dunnigan and... Uh, oh gosh, the uh, Anne Galloway, maybe the other actress, the young girl who played in Ghost of Frankenstein. I think they're both going to be at the bash this fall, and I mean they're also getting up there in years. So our opportunity to see these older stars is rapidly diminishing, and I was really glad to have met her. Do you recall anything she said about Karloff in the Q and A? She commented on how he was a professional, how he was a gentleman, um, very very polite, very personable. He always knew his lines. He was, you know, very, very proper, but yet also very personable. And so that was an incredible... He says, you knew you were working with somebody who knew his craft, but also greatly appreciated the fact that he was there. That he and, and I think that's something that a lot of other people have said about Boris, is that he never forgot where he came from. And he truly enjoyed what he did. He didn't need the money at the end of his life when he kept making all his film appearances. He just enjoyed what he was doing. I think, gosh, Boris Karloff would be one of those people that would be attending Monster Bash today if he was still alive because he would, you know, enjoy talking with the fans. I think think of people like Boris Karloff and Vincent Price. If they were alive in today's world, they, they would be the people who would that much like the hammer stars we saw truly appreciate the fans and think of this as like their second family. That was the impression I got from her is that Boris Karloff, she, she loved working with him. She, uh, somebody asked if she had like any experiences off camera and, and she said that she didn't because of her age. When she wasn't on the stage, she had to be in school. Um, they RKO had a school there and, and they were very strict about that. I'm trying to remember now because somebody had commented about the uh, and it's Donnie Dunnigan how Donnie Dunnigan played checkers with Boris Karloff and she said well that's because Donnie Dunnigan wasn't uh, in school yet because he was younger she said she didn't get a chance to play checkers with Boris Karloff because when her scenes were over with she was basically shuttled off to to her classroom but she says when she was on stage uh, with him there that that she really really enjoyed working with him we had a little bit of a break then they showed mask of fu manchu you mentioned that earlier after that i camped out in that room i was there then from two o'clock to nine or nine thirty, <laughs> yeah. and that's primarily because 
the United States premiere of House of the Gorgon was that night at 7.30, and they had been telling us at everything that we went to how they expected it to be full, and in fact, they were going to do a second showing of it later at night so that everyone would have a chance. I got it in my head that I've got to stay here and save seats, and I wanted, you know, all of us to get seats. So, I mean, I enjoyed everything that was there. I just didn't originally plan probably to sit there that long. First up was that brain twist quiz that you talked about. And that was a lot of fun. Tom Weaver does that, digs pretty deep on some of those questions. To be honest, and maybe it's because I'm a monster kid, they didn't seem to be that hard of questions. And a lot of them were multiple choice and a couple of them were in there to, I, I was, to help you. I, I, our friend Steve Turk was sitting next to me and kept telling me, you should be up there, you should be up there on stage. I was like, no, I've heard, I was terrified. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to be on yeah. stage and asked, you know, what was Vincent Price's uh, social security number <laughs> in Laura? I thought that's that's the deep, deep questions they were going to ask. I was surprised as well. As like, I knew the answers to probably ninety percent of the questions that were being asked, or you know, or I could have figured it out with a multiple choice, like you said. If I ever in that situation again, I might be more encouraged to give it a shot. Because then again, some people who didn't know the answer, I'm not sure that they were necessarily embarrassed because the audience didn't make fun of them. You might get that at a different convention. You didn't get that there. I loved that. That was a lot of fun. And I liked it. We mentioned earlier, I loved the fact that there were some little kids playing it. And they knew their stuff. Yep. And I say they were easier questions than I thought. I still was doing terrible because, of course, you play along in the audience and I'd whisper to you my answer and 99% of the time it was wrong. But at least they were ones I thought I could attempt to answer rather than like, whoa, I'm stumped, you know. And and the way they do that is Tom sits up there on a stool and people just line up in a row and they kind of go through rapid fire if they get... The answer correct, they get a sticky note, and then at the end of the round, whoever has the most sticky notes, you know, wins. So that, that was a lot of fun, not as intimidating as I thought, and yeah, perhaps in the future one of us can participate, if not both of us. After that was the Martine Beswick Q&A. What did you think of Martine? Martine is, she loves her fans, and she is very theatrical, very flamboyant very flamboyant she is relishing every minute of this second life second career what have you she had retired long ago and she is in recent years started doing conventions of course meeting josh josh kennedy and and her work in the house of the gorgon she is soaking in every minute of it and it's actually it's fun to watch. I mean, it's just you're sitting there thinking, and because it's great, because you know what? Most actors and actresses don't have conventions like this to relive the, their glory days of, of, you know, their career in the past, films, television, whatever. When Hollywood moves on to somebody else, most, uh, most stars kind of just slide back into the background and don't have an opportunity. But sci-fi and horror stars... They can they can have that resurgence through conventions and especially something like Monster Bash when it's a lot more personable. Somebody like Martine is just soaking it in, and so it's, it was a lot of fun. Genuinely, uh, a joy to watch. Yeah, I, I love her. I love her energy. It's just something I want to be part of. I got some audio from that too. Let's play this now, and hopefully, some of that translates from uh, being in person to to audio. I have a feeling that it will. What inspired you to become an actress, and how did you get your start? Um, well, first of all, I think 
it was a destiny because I kept saying that I was going to be an actress at four years old and I had no idea. I'd never seen a television, I'd never seen a film, I had no idea. I don't know where it came from. Um, and from my little girl, that was what I wanted to do. And eventually, I did. Well, I started doing modeling. And then, um, then it's just sort of went from there. So that's how it all began. Um, where did you film One Million Years BC? Any recollections of Ray Harry? How is it you can share? Oh, oh. Um, <clears throat> we did that in Lanzarote, in the Canary Islands, and um, I I don't remember whether it was. In fact, it's interesting because the next year is going to be the, they're doing a hundred hundred year. Um, or something very special and they've got a whole there's a whole um, exhibition of all his work that's going to be happening in Scotland so it's a big year for Ray Harryhausen anyway so basically I had to remember uh, his daughter asked me to sort of make you know write something about my memories of him and the thing that I remember most of all was when we first the first um, scene that they had to do. And there we were in Raquel and there's all of us and we're in this like beautiful volcanic lake and we're all in, you know, swimming or something. In these bits of leather that are now hanging off us. Really you know, wet and soaked and not attractive. And then they have to fight this pterodactyl. And raise on a flatbed truck with a special stick to give us the eyeline so that he can fill in and make these creatures, right? So he's got this stick and we're all going around going, <laughs> 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 there's nothing there. Right? So every now and again, we kind of, we suddenly turn and see all these, these us twits, really, you know, little wet, soaked pieces of leather going, <laughs> And we'd start laughing. <laughs> and we would have to, st they'd have to stop. And then the director would say, now, the guys, I mean, please, you know, this is, we have to get on with this. And goes, oh, sorry. And we go on again. And so we get this whole sort of giggling and we couldn't stop. So this is what, but it did work. Finally, of course, we stopped laughing. But it was, I got to see him working a little bit after that. Wow, I just wanted to sit at his feet and I wanted him to tell me stories. I wanted his, I, I just wanted, he was a lovely guy, lovely guy. I mean, the whole experience of that is really fantastic. So, yeah. How was it working for Roy Lord Baker on uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde? Um, well, we got on very well at first and then there was a, uh, there was a little problem because he decided I think he was being pushed, actually. And the problem decided that he was going to be, he needed a full, he needed full immunity. And it wasn't in the script. And I said, no, 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 And he was kind of, he got a bit sort of, you know, nose out of joint. And the two of us were sort of a bit at long ahead, because I said, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But then after a while, I thought, this is so silly. This is so silly. So then we got on, and we had, we actually really had a really good time, especially because I was having a great time with, with uh, Ralph Bates, 
However, because Caroline was doing it, everybody else, we got down. And we, and when we did it, we just, we got all sort of like, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> we were terribly excited, terribly excited. So, and actually working with my darling sister, I mean, what, really? Yeah. such a good time and it was he's just such a love I don't mess with anybody else I want to be familiar I want to be in my family so um, if you can't call that about acting again it's really about the fun I had (laughs) after that there was something I I definitely I knew I wanted to do before we even went there a few years ago, I had watched, it was either The Lodger or Hangover Square. I had gotten it from Netflix on DVD, and I was watching the bonus features, and there was a documentary about the actor Laird Kriegar. And it was just very interesting. He's a sad Hollywood story, you know, back from the the early days. Well, I guess it wasn't really early days. What was that, 40s? 40s, 40s? Yeah. yeah. Very sad, and... Greg Mank has just written a, an autobiography, not an autobiography, a biography of Laird Kriegar, and he gave a presentation. And I, I knew that's something that I wanted to see to see if I could learn more. And I have a feeling his presentation was edited a little bit. He he flat out mentioned a couple times that it was a family event and he couldn't really go into detail, but it was a much tamer version of that documentary I had seen before. Still very interesting, but he just kind of touched on some things that I was hoping he would dig into deeper. I intended to go by his table later and, and maybe ask him a couple of follow-up questions, and I either forgot and then I don't think he was there Sunday, so I didn't, but... I thought it was a fascinating presentation, fascinating character, this actor. Uh, How did you like it? Well, um, for starters, if you've seen any of the Universal Horror documentaries, you've seen Greg Mank. Those movies made it to DVD in, what, 98, 99? They all came, Frankenstein, Dracula, all the classics came with about a 30 to 35, 40-minute documentary on the film and the film series. And those have been on every other version since then. They're still included because they're that good. And he is featured in, in quite a few of them. So you know who he is. He's, he is a film historian, and he knows his stuff. And Larry Krigar, in particular, is a very important part of his, of his life and, and why he's done what he's done. And he goes into some great detail in his presentation about kind of the almost supernatural twists and turns there when he actually went to go visit the grave of Laird Kragar and, and certain things that happened. So it was a great presentation. He, too, has written quite a few books, a lot of classic books going back quite a ways that are out of print. He's written one in particular on uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi that's been on my wish list for a long time, and he did have some there. And then, you know, again, there's only so much money to go around, and I just I didn't have the money for that. Would love to get that book in particular 
because I've heard a lot of good things about it, and especially after seeing him. Yeah, he's he's uh, he knows his stuff. He's he's not just a horror historian, but he, I think he's film historian in general. But horror films seems to be his calling. It was a great presentation. I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and afterwards I stayed and watched The Lodger. I don't think uh, you did or the other people in our group did. You had to get up and get something to eat, and I sacrificed and stayed. I, I had seen The Lodger before. I didn't really intend to sit and watch it, but I did. I enjoyed it. It's a good movie. Yeah, I don't have much else to say about yeah, that. Yeah, it's a great movie. I Yeah, there was a uh, a hot dog and nachos calling my name because I knew the evening was going to be equally as busy. So a few of us took a break and, and went to the lobby. And I hmm, You know, I think I saw some other people eating in that room. You probably could have brought me something. I probably could have. You know, I, they didn't say specifically that people couldn't bring anything in, but uh, I was taking a, taking a break out in the lobby. Oh, so. that's all right because there was cake only a couple hours away. That That's true. That's true. You got in quite a, a line while... I was still sitting in there to get back in, right? Yes, actually. That's, yeah, you're right. I, was, I forgot what you were talking about there for a second. Yes. Uh, several of us, there were seats saved for us. Thankfully worked out for everybody. Yeah, there was a line to get back in for the event. And, and I don't know what point the line started, but they at some point they closed the doors and you couldn't get back in, which is never the case for anything else. Those doors are open. You can come and go as you please all weekend but they knew the crowd was for house of the gorgon was going to be standing room only they they added a second showing because of that uh, the line gosh can't i can't give it you know without actually being there to tell you that when we got there the line more than doubled behind us and was pretty much ready to go out the side of the hotel so it was uh, it was truly standing room only, and I believe pro- people probably were turned away. Before the the show, they had 30 minutes uh, where Ron Adams interviewed Josh Kennedy, and then they brought the cast up, Veronica Carlson, Martine Beswick, Christopher Neem. I got some video, or video audio of that uh, as well. Let's play that real quick, and then you want to come back and talk about the movie a little bit? Indeed. Let's talk to Josh, producer, director, writer, Josh Kennedy. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> hello, hello. hello. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> Josh, I saw some um, video of you very, very young, and I have a feeling that that was the initial seed for this project, uh, the Gorgon, the Hammer film. You want to tell us about that? Yes. Well. There's this little hammer film called The Gorgon. Have we heard of this? I forget I'm preaching to the choir here. And it's like, oh, of course, Hammer's The Gorgon. We've all seen that. And for some reason, I saw it around age four or five. And you would think, you know, Dracula or Frankenstein or The Mummy would be the easy one. But for me, it was Hammer's The Gorgon. And I was enraptured and immediately... um, When I was seven, I directed a stage production with my dad of the Gorgon on stage. And, yeah, I know everyone's laughing. It's true. And uh, it's always been been a a great 
favorite, it's my favorite film of all time, and then it's The Ten Commandments. Um, <laughs> the two, they go, they're a great double bill. But, um, but yeah, I've, all, I've always, it's Clash of the Titans, Medusa is in, and uh, Gorgon's just, it's just a great character, and yeah. Okay, then how did House of the Gorgon the orig originate? Well, it was actually Caroline Monroe, lovely Caroline Monroe, and we were all, I had become friends with uh, Martine Beswick, who will be making her big entrance in a bit, and, um, and we were all got to become friends with lovely Veronica Carlson, and the wonderful Christopher Neem, and the wonderful Tammy Hamalian, and, and it was Caroline Monroe at one of these conventions who was like, you know, we were all friends, we should make a movie together. And we're all <laughs> I was the only one that immediately the blood drained from my face. And uh, yeah, that's, 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 that was, and I was like, okay, what, what, what movie can we, can we come up with? And it was, oh, Gorgon, Hammer, we have, to, we have the Hammer people, and that was the seed. Okay, well, some of the things that had to come together for this whole thing to happen. I mean, we got people in London, right, and people in Texas. Yes, yes. luckily, it all come together. We had a wonderful uh, Indiegogo campaign. Raise your hand if you've contributed to the Indiegogo campaign. Thank you. So, round of applause to you guys. You, you, you helped make, make it possible. And, um, and that, and then, so then it was, we're all going to fly down. I'm from South South Texas. And we flew everyone, my lovely cast, down to South Texas for one week to shoot. We only had the budget for one week. <laughs> and um, we shot the whole thing in this tiny, it wasn't tiny, uh, this wedding banquet hall. It was a banquet hall where you have weddings and quinceañeras and parties and graduations. And we built all the sets in this tiny little banquet hall in Texas. And um, shot the whole thing in five days, and real Roger Corman style, and um, yeah, it was, it was, I still can't believe, I mean, I'm still in awe that it, that it happened. Like, why am I sitting here? What, what is this? Is this real life? Is this just fantasy? <laughs> yeah. How about Derek's contribution in post? Okay, Derek M. Cook, where are you at? Yeah. He is uh, Monster Kid Radio. He helped out with all of the crappy sound that I recorded. He came in and polished it up and made it sound beautiful. And also, Mitch Gonzalez. Where's Mitch? Raise your hand. Can you stand up, sir? This guy created all the snakes for the film. And fantastic. Uh, I'd also, uh, where's Reber Clark? Reber Clark's over here. He wrote, he chanted, Random Rock this guy. James Bernard and did the most James Bernard tribute score you will ever hear and um, we all know James Bernard when you live you watch Christopher Lee's Dracula it's Dracula um, there's a similar theme for this one and I'm sure those of you with James Bernard ears will both hear it um, yeah yeah this is it was a big collaboration of all sorts of people. I hope I'm, I'm probably missing people, and I'm sorry. My brain is complete mush right now. I have no idea what's going on. But uh, well, we, we've had uh, been promoting it in Creepy Classics and Monster Bash religiously, and I know you have on your your pages, and uh, the response has been just outstanding. So, and it's you know people have such fondness for the Hammer films, and and you trying to emulate or 
giving a tribute to the Hammer films is just, just great. Uh, what are some of your uh, other favorite Hammer films besides The Gorgon? I mean, there's, it's, it's hard for me to dislike a Hammer film. I'm sure there are many of you who feel that way. Um, Brides of Dracula. I mean, I, I'll try and list just off the top of my head the tributes that you will see. And I, there are so many tributes in this film. There are paintings on the walls of different films, Hound of the Baskervilles, Fear in the Night, Brides of Dracula, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, Dracula AD 72, of course. I mean, I think this is the crowd that needs, that will appreciate yes. the, the film. We get it. Yes, you, you will get it. And I am just overwhelmed. Like, look at, we're, we're packed house here. Who, who would have thought? And we're having another one at, at 10. Yes. Right, in, in case there's people that can hear us outside the doors, we'll be doing it again at 10 o'clock in here tonight. Yes, yes. Uh, how about uh, the, the gals? Uh, when you approached, uh, were you all just really sitting, talking together, or did you get a hold of Veronica and Martine and Christopher uh, and Caroline and I know, I know we were all separately. We, we were all having having dinner that first time that Caroline said that. And then on the plane ride home back to Texas, I wrote on the vomit bag this idea for House of the Gorgon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's where the greatest ideas come from, right? And uh, it, 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 it all just snowballed. I, I see more promotional ideas yes. jumping off from that. Yeah, and it was. It was Unbelievable, and everything, the planets aligned, and everything worked out, schedules lined up. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't even know, know what to say. Well, we had both seen the movie before. It was not a world premiere for us. We could not wait. We, we both participated in the Indiegogo campaign, and we had gotten our DVDs. I fully intended to wait and see it for the first time, but when you watched it and started talking about it, applied a little peer pressure. Uh, I decided I had to watch it, too. I, I was afraid if I didn't like it, I wouldn't want to see it at Monster Bash, but I think it plays differently at home versus there, and it, it was just a different experience seeing it with a, a bunch of people, so I'm, I'm glad it worked out as it did. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, House of the Gorgon is, is uh, Joshua Kinney's latest film, which is a, uh, a homage to Hammer Films with a cast probably rivaling any classic camera film uh, with Veronica Carlson, Martine Beswick, Caroline Monroe, and Christopher Neem, and of course Joshua Kennedy himself, and Georgina Dugdale, which is... Carolyn's daughter. Carolyn's daughter, yes, from her second marriage. There, there are, you know, it's a low budget. There's a few flaws in the film, as with any low budget film you're going to have, but it showed incredibly well on the big screen. It, it, it covered up, you know, maybe some audio uh, issues or some lighting issues showing it in, in the big screen. And, you know, again, seeing with an audience of everyone who's like-minded, that always plays into your experience as well. So I thought that, that it played very well with the crowd. It's, it's a fun film. Of course, we got to give a shout-out to Mitch Gonzalez, our friend who did the makeup work, the, uh, the snakes uh, that are worn by Caroline and um, uh, Martine in the film. A lot of little things that you might not catch otherwise, like a little bust of, um, oh... Michael Ripper? Michael Ripper, yes, uh, that was present in the bar. Uh, the soundtrack from, uh, mm. from Reaver Clark is amazing. Uh, I have the, the CD, and, and uh, I met, had a chance to meet him, and he remembered my name. Uh, go figure, remembering the name Richard Chamberlain. I had reached out to him and, and did buy the CD, and, and uh, it's, again... 
if you like movie soundtracks, you definitely need to get it because it's truly great music. It is, it is. And uh, enhances the film, uh, and which is what any good soundtrack does. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, I, you know, it is cool to, to know that they added a second showing that played while they were doing the Revenge of the Creature outside drive-in showing. Um, so it was it was nice that they had a chance to, for someone who might not own the DVD like you or I to uh, to see it there uh, at Monster Bash. So uh, we made it through. Then, of course, afterwards it was uh, line up for your free cake. And then it was time to, to head outside for the drive-in showing of Revenge of the Creature. But, you know, this is our second time doing that, so it's it's a fun experience. Get out the lawn chairs. They have it in a, in a grassy area uh, to the north of the hotel. Uh, show a couple of cartoons, and uh, they might have shown some trailers this time around. I don't know that. They didn't while we were there, but... Uh, and then dive right into the movie, which was a 16-millimeter print, which I think is always fun. It was a little chilly, by the time you got to the end of the movie, uh, some cool weather, which was nice. Uh, didn't have to deal with any uh, humidity or mosquitoes or anything like that. It was a nice night at the drive-in uh, watching Revenge of the Creature, which is a classic. Uh, next event, which was the big prize toss. And I guess us being out there, we did have to pay the price because we got in the very last row of the room of the prize toss and didn't make out as well as we did last year on the prize toss. I did get a eyeball to the gut, which caught me off guard and actually left a mark. Uh, you picked up the eyeball and, and gave me the eyeball, so I had this I had this prize for my war wound from Monster Bash. That was a lot of fun. They they gave out a lot of prizes and stuff. But I think what was more fun is right before that, of course, you had the uh, West Shank Memorial, West Shank, the uh, keeper of the blob, who neither one of us have ever had the opportunity to meet, and sadly we won't. He died very unexpectedly last year. His family was on hand for kind of a dual presentation because not only did he get one of the Monster Bash 4 awards for the Monster Kid Hall of Fame, but also the uh, Monster Kid Hall of Fame for the Rondo Awards. David Colton gave an award. So his uh, stepson and, and uh, son were on hand, as well as his wife, who was kind of off to the side. It was, it was uh, a sad moment. But then it was followed by some good moments because there were some more Rondo awards that were given out, including to Ron Adams, uh, a few others that were present in the crowd. Uh, as we mentioned, Caroline Monroe's daughter uh, accepted the award on her mother's behalf. And, of course, then that went straight into the the Festival of the Wine. Was it the Festival of the New Wine or the song? Is that the? Yes, Festival of the New Wine song from Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And then prizes were given out. And then... Uh, and then we, we spent the rest of the, the wee hours of the evening uh, talking. I think we were we were talking with our, our good friends uh, until, I don't know, 2 in the morning. It seemed like we, we uh, kept on going to the lobby for a long time. And uh, Sunday, what did we do Sunday? Saturday ended. Um, yeah, we, we snuck away Sunday morning to go to our, our favorite store in Pittsburgh, Eids Entertainment or Eids Entertainment, E-I-D-E apostrophe S. Basement is a, a fantastic comic book shop. Lots of back issues, reasonable prices. The main level where you go in is uh, new comic books and just sort of a miscellaneous things from all their other floors. The floor above that, I think, is music. and It's a mixture of, of music and they had the big paperback section and magazine section and, and books. 
Is there a floor above that? There is. I, I went there? to the fourth floor, and that is uh, that was all music. Oh, okay. That was an odd mix. There was more modern music there, but then there was also their bargain section of music. And then the music that you got on the third floor was a lot of your classic rock, the soundtracks, and then the other other stuff like that. And then DVDs in the mix of all that, which I didn't even bother to look at any of the DVDs because I knew I was spending more money on DVDs at the Bash, so I didn't need to look at anything there. Great place, gosh, four floors of, of goodness and more stuff to look at. It, you know, if if you're ever in the Pittsburgh area, highly recommend it. You know, they have a huge paperback section, famous monsters magazine, huge monster section there. A lot of rare stuff, nice old time radios collection. Again, if I'd had the extra money, there was a really nice uh, set of Tarzan uh, radio pl- um, episodes from the fifties, old time radio episodes that I would have picked up. They had that really nice, cheap, nice and cheap. So, yeah, if you're a fan of the of the comics or film or music i don't think there's a way you can walk in there and not walk out with at least something and the prices are 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 reasonable plus the comics my gosh they they do have golden age comics there which you don't find in any any other shop and i saw that after we left they got a nice collection this past week i don't know if you've noticed on facebook 14 posts of uh, golden and silver age comics um, hmm. a superman number 20 has come into their possession so yeah they said that this stuff won't be going out right away they're going to be grading them and doing all that fun stuff but that's 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 the kind of cool shop that that is so gets two thumbs up from us i think uh, if you're in the pittsburgh area we did make it back to the convention after that just in time you caught all of it and i Totally didn't understand that it was starting when it did. I'm sitting there la- leisurely eating my sub sandwich while you've inhaled yours. And I'm like, well, were you hungry? No, I'm trying to make it to the <laughs> q and I'm like, that's not for another half hour. No, it starts now. So I, I caught the last five minutes of the Q&A with uh, Veronica Carlson. But you caught all of it. And uh, so what did you think of it? You know, I'll offer my thoughts, but you caught more of it than I did. Yeah, it was just a, everything you hear about Veronica Carlson and the, the stories we've heard of her making House of the Gorgon. It's just, she's a very dignified, classy woman, very proper, very gracious. And I have some audio from that as well. I think it's our last little bit of audio. Let's go ahead and play that, and then we'll talk about what happened at the end of her Q&A. How did you get your start, and what inspired you to become an actress? When I was in college, well, I was always pretending. I was always playing games of let's pretend. You know how kids do. And uh, when I went to college, we had a, a music director called Peter Goodwin. I used to sing in the choir as soprano. And I thought, I want to be with this man. He's absolutely a genius. But when I went to college, he was the music director in college. And, uh, of course, I joined the music side of things straight away. We did stage productions, uh, musical ones. We did The Conspirators by Schubert. I was one of the conspirators. Um, and we sang to our jury. I was one of the three maids. And we did, oh, we did reviews. And the, This was in our spare time. We, we did our lunch breaks between evening, you know, from uh, afternoon classes between into, into evening classes. We'd do it. It was a constant joy. I mean... Peter Goodwin said to me, years later, those were the happiest four years of his teaching career, there was a group of us in college that sort of got together and meshed, a bit like Caroline and Martine and I, you know, the, the, 
We just meshed, all of us, and it was a, there were no drugs. If we could afford a lager at the end of a week, we did, but we barely could do that. And we just met up to chair. And uh, that, that's how it was. And the, the, the end of my fourth year, he wanted me for the Lied de la Vie Parisienne. So the principal came from down from the high school lofty heights and said, if she fails this exam, it's on your head, Peter Goodwin. So I couldn't do it. And I was very upset about that. But I understood why. You know, you, you can't cheat an art exam. I mean, you're there doing it on the ease, so you can't cheat. But uh, no, but I got through my, my college years very well. And, uh, and I, they were very happy years. But during those, that year, I remember going to the theater to see a Hannah movie, and I skived off a class. And I thought it was only me that did it with a friend. And I thought, we both said, they'll never notice us go away. But what we didn't know, other people said exactly the same thing. And when Mr. Sheverson got to the class, there was nobody there. So <laughs> he thought he knew where we'd gone. And uh, in, when you know when the lights come up, when the, you, know, you know how everyone looks around to see who else. There he was. This man was six feet four, very well built. And we all looked at him and he said, I want each one of you back in class as soon as this film is over. <laughs> he let us see the film. And he said, and when we got back to class, he said, don't forget, I've passed my exams. You haven't passed yours yet. <laughs> but we never skied off again. But it was a Hammer movie. And we, we, we were all fans of Hammer. And I used to think, I'll be up there one day. I will be up there one day. I didn't know how, I just knew it would happen. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about making the goal? I'm sorry, what did you say? Oh, the goal with uh, Peter Cushing? Uh, yeah, that was a very uh, strange movie for me. Because uh, I'd, I'd worked with Peter, uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed. And he was, he was a joy, a wonderful man to be with. Uh, and the goal, this is after his wife had passed away. And I was working with a broken-hearted man. And... Uh, he had to have a picture, he, always he had a picture of his wife, Ellen, on a set, wherever he was. I'd go, I'd get there early to see where he'd hidden it, and I was always the first to find it. But anyway, he, uh, he had a scene in the ghoul where he had to talk about his wife, and there was Helen's picture, his, his wife, and he looked at this picture and had to bemoan the loss of his wife, his death, and of course she had died not long beforehand. And I remember Freddie asked him to redo the take. And he did that take six times, and in the end, Peter was a dis so distraught, tears were falling off his face. I hate to remember it. And he said, I can't do this anymore, Freddie. I'm going to my dressing room. Now, I was amazed that Freddie put him through it. Freddie was a very kind, very generous, patient director. And I knew that he did it because he saw he was getting so much from Peter, so very much. But the result was, the crew, <laughs> I turned round, I was crying. The crew, grown men were weeping. They put the lights out and all walked off the set. He, Peter was a most loved actor. There wasn't anyone who didn't love Peter. And I remember he told me, he held my hand, and he said, darling, 
You've no idea how many times I ran up and down stairs trying to give myself a heart attack. To better even be with Helen. It was the, he, he loved her so much. And uh, after that, the, everybody in show business, he, he was loved. He, they gave him work after work after work after work. He was never out of work. He was never allowed to rest. He had to keep working. Everything. Everyone rallied around Peter. And he said to me, when you come to England, darling, come and have dinner with me. He and his secretary, Joyce Borden. But I never could make it. We had problems in America. My husband wasn't too well. And I could never stay long enough to make that trip. And it's something I bitterly regret. But... Uh, I consider myself the most fortunate person to have known him on two levels. And, and for him to confide in me, to know me well enough that he could trust me, to confide in me. Oops, still, I think I'm going on too much. And could you tell us a little bit about when you first met uh, Peter Cushing? Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about like, what it was like when you first met Peter Cushing? Yeah. Uh, when I first got the role of Dracula, I was risen from the grave of Maria, uh, Peter came to the studio because they were presenting the uh, Queen's Award of Industry to Hammer, and I was lucky enough to be there. And I mean, here's the Johnny-come-lately, never having anything to do with Hammer before. I was in costume, of course, as Maria, and Barbara was in costume as the barmaid. And there was Christopher, and there was Peter, and us two ladies who had nothing to do with anything at that time being presented with the Queen's Award to Industry to the Lord Lieutenant of Buckinghamshire and his wife. And uh, what amazed me about these two gentlemen, I think you always have a preconceived idea in your head about people, you know, you see this tall, elegant man, and you know he's an aristocrat of some kind, and he's going to be unapproachable. Peter, and they were so approachable, it was amazing. It's like we'd known them all our lives. And uh, great sense of humor, and we were immediate friends, and uh, I, I enjoyed working with them so very, very much. So that was our introduction, and then of course we had the reading around the table of uh, the, the script, just to time it out and everything. And God, I can't remember how happy I was meeting people that I'd seen on TV, film and been a fan of, as growing up and then, you know, from school through college, and that's here I am on the screen with them. Oh, blimey, this is wonderful. I'm, I'm here, I made it. I blow the bachelor's degree I just got in, uh, in college, but oh my God. It, or I remember my father saying to me, don't do anything to embarrass me, darling. He wasn't very impressed with me going into the film business, but I hope I didn't do anything to embarrass him. Do you have any memories of Terence Fisher? Yes. Oh, poor Terry, always with a cane. He was always walking into traffic. Nobody understood why. <laughs> he was always getting done in, you know. <laughs> um, he was a great contrast to Freddie Francis. And I think that was a good time for me because he thought I knew what I was doing, which was very encouraging, you know, for a start. And I remember the first day of filming, we were sitting on the stairs, Peter and I, and uh, we were doing to do my death scene. This is the first day of shooting. So, as if I'm not sitting there, Terry comes up to both of us and looks at Peter and says, so how would you like to kill her, Peter? 
And Lisa said, I've been giving that a lot of thought to it. <laughs> so I waited with bated breath to see. And he said yes. And, he said, and so Peter went through the motions. And I thought if I had a scalpel and embraced her onto the scalpel and it would go into her, oh, what a wonderful idea, excellent idea. Yes, I think that's a good idea. We'll put a wooden block. Nobody asked me. It was, it was, it was like I wasn't there. And I, I tried to, anyway, it was all done. It was all settled without me being there. Well, you know, I was there, but not according to them. So I had a wooden block attached underneath my blouse that then so protected me, obviously. And we did the death scene that first day. I died, I think. But, oh, but I said, please, may I die with my eyes open? Certainly not, darling. You would never get past the senses, he said. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's how it was. I wanted to die with my eyes open. I thought it would be to great effect. Anyway. Your thoughts and memories on working with Christopher Lee? Oh, yeah. Christopher had a great sense of humor. He'd go out and whack a few golf balls every now and then into Black Park or wherever he was. And uh, I remember I asked him one day how heavy his cloak was. He didn't say a word. He took it off and put it around my shoulders and my legs nearly gave way. It weighed about 25 pounds. It was incredibly heavy. Thank goodness his stunt, <laughs> the stuntman and his double wore very, very light because when he carried me up that mountain, I, I thought, I know I'm going to fall off. I know my head's going to And it was high. It really was high. But he had a he never complained about those awful contacts. And I remember very clearly how generous an actor he was when I had to be approached by him in the cellar when I'd been thrown down by Barbara Ewing onto the cellar floor and I had to gaze up at him. And Freddie had said, this is your eye line, darling, and he put his hand up behind the camera. I could just see it off camera. And I heard this voice, that lovely voice of Chris's, I'll be her eyeline, Freddie. And I was so grateful to him. You know, acting to a hand is one thing, but acting to a man who's actually acting as if he were on camera with you was a remarkable gift to me. I've never forgotten it. And I've never stopped thanking him for it. And I was later to learn, much later to learn, that Fat Gregory Peck had done the same thing for him when he was a younger actor, and he'd never, ever forgotten that and uh, stayed with me, but he was a generous, thoughtful, kind man. And when I asked him to sit for me for that sketch, I wanted to give him a sketch. Uh, it took 35 minutes, and I presented it to him. Uh, to think that he sat for me, because I would never think about daring to ask. I don't know how I got the goal to do it, but that's how approachable he was. And. Uh, he met my parents and they thought the world of him. Everyone did. And uh, I remember the scenes. We took Hammer very seriously. There was no joking around. We took the scenes seriously. No laughter. And uh, we all enjoyed it. We loved the spirit of that company and that, those films. And Christopher used to say, you can be safely horrified. This is where you can sit and be safely horrified. And that, I think, was a beautiful phrase to use for Hammer. Memories of working with Michael Ripper. Oh, yeah. Oh, Michael. Michael was wonderful. Well, he was in every Hammer movie, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and Christopher would say, oh, my goodness, we're starring in another Michael Ripper movie. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Lovely. 
Yeah, he was adored by everybody. He, had, he was a sparkling human being. He, he fairly sparkled like a little spike, spectacles he would wear. And I'd go and watch him do the bar scenes with um, Barry Andrews. And we'd all be around just gazing at him. And he was rubbing the glass, cleaning the glasses. And he, he was um, so approachable. And at one of the conventions I went to much later years, I, I did a portrait of him, but anyway, that's another story. Um, he was becoming uh, very forgetful. I don't know if he had senile dementia or if it was something he, he didn't remember. And he was standing on stage and he was having all this applause. And he was just gazing as, like, why am I here? This is amazing. Is this for me? And I, there wasn't a dry eye, you know, because you could see by his, his expression that he really didn't understand that he did have a faraway memory that was coming back and knocking at the door. Do you know what I mean? And uh, that was the last time I saw him. Um, yeah, I, 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 yes, it, it, I've been so lucky to work with these people. Yeah, it is adorable. House of the Gorgon, was it as much fun as it looked like it was? And then the second part is, is there going to be a sequel? Oh my God. The House of the Gorgon. Boy, oh boy, that was fun. Well, Josh, Josh is a dynamo for a start. And of course, I'm working with Martine. I've never worked with Martine and Caroline before. They're just very good friends. And uh, first time I met Christopher Mead was the... Over there. We just got, it was like hammer days again. We all got our no trace unions to bother us and say, time to stop filming now. And I'm not moving that plant because it's in a pot. That's the gardener's job and you know, that type of thing because that was wrecking the film industry in Britain. And uh, Josh was so creative. I have to tell you one very lovely story about Josh. He had a wind scene with the leaves. I don't know if you remember it. The leaves are scattering. And ages afterwards, when they sort of cleared it up, I saw Josh on his hands and knees, and other people on their hands and knees, looking for leaves. I thought, we can get leaves, they're outside, we can go pick some more. These were four very special leaves. And I asked him, he found the fourth one, and it must have taken 15 minutes, so it got blown under something. And I asked him, and he put them in a little velvet lined box. And he collected them from Black Park, where we did so many, you know, pieces from Hammer Films. We were always doing something in Black Park. And he visited as a child at the age of eight. And he picked up four leaves from Black Park as a souvenir. And he put them in this little velvet light box, and the world was on its axis again. That's how he is. He's, he's so... And he asked me to put the bust of... Uh, my lovely Michael Ripper on the bar. He said, Veronica, you've got to do that. You've got to be the one to put it on the bar. And so, um, little things like that all the way through. Josh's mother would come with lunch every day, the best meals. Oh my goodness, salads. Just beautiful, lovely lady. And she'd bring us lunch, and everyone was so glad to see her. But, oh my goodness. And sangria on occasion. The first day was sangria, and the last, but not, not the meantime. And, uh, Josh's father partook. It was a family affair. And it, we had, obviously, we, we, we spent every day being happy. How can you beat that? And I swear the sun is bigger in Texas. Because as we came out of the building, the sun just filled the sky as it was setting. It was a remarkable time. Very happy time. Another hammer time, really. So, do you think there's going to be a sequel? Is there going to be a sequel? You know? 
A sequel? Say that again. A sequel to a house. Oh, no. Oh, he's talking about Whitby. Oh, he won't t tell anything about it. He just looked at me. I said, well, why do you want to go to Whitby for? It's a horrible place as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I know that's where Dracula arrived, but it really is a horrible place. It's right on the sea. Of course, it's a harbour. And the Siberian, the Siberian winds rush down and the water is icy cold and rough, North Sea. And I remember when I went there oh, years ago, my husband and I, we thought, oh, it going to be good for seafood, for sure, it's going to be great for seafood. So we bought a couple of crab cakes, you know, we couldn't eat them, they were like hockey pucks. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't, got that. We just couldn't, we just threw them into the, the harbour. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's an historic place. My father said, like, his <laughs> postcards from Whitby, and they were all the most boring views of Whitby. There isn't a happy, board, there isn't a happy view of Whitby, I promise you. <laughs> There's a ruined abbey, there's these huge whale's teeth, and for some unknown reason, the postcard was, you know, set back in the 1900s when, the, when they first got photographs working as it, with an, a, a washing line of old trousers, you know, so <laughs> a horrible baggy pants, and that was the third most boring picture. <laughs> no, it was fun, he made fun of it. But no, uh, they had friends there, uh, so they knew Whitby very well. They had a, one of those homes, uh, a shops on the quayside, and they lived above. They lived above it, and it's a very old place. Anyway, that's what he said. So I don't know. Okay. That's all I know. So you got back just in time, Richard, for the uh, big presentation at the end, where David Colton presented her with her uh, Monster Kid Hall of Fame Rondo Award. Uh, tell us how she reacted to that. Um, you know, she genuinely was was shocked and surprised. So I'm not sure if she just didn't know that she had won the award or that she didn't know that it was going to be presented at that time. She was moved quite a bit. She was very emotional uh, to the point where she really couldn't even speak. A nice touch that, that, that Ron Adams and his wife had done also for uh, Sharon Moffat and for Martine was that they handed a bouquet of flowers and, uh, you know, gave a little uh, recognition. And so, you know, that's how it started. And then she gets the uh, presentation from... Uh, David Colton and got her uh, Rondo Award. So I, you know, that was moving to me to see, to see a star again. You know, a star get this this recognition at at this late in their career and, and post career. Really, I thought was very very uh, very moving. I was glad I was there to see that last five minutes. Um, I had seen Veronica obviously two years ago, so you know I wasn't entirely bummed that I missed the Q and A. But I'm incredibly glad that I made that last five minutes. That was our last, really, our last event uh, at the Bash proper. We had missed uh, the Q&A for Raku Browning earlier in the day. But, again, we saw him two years ago, and so we opted to to do a little shopping in Pittsburgh so that we could leave a little earlier on Monday, which I think was probably the best decision quite a bit, actually. It got us home about three hours earlier than we originally planned, which was a big plus. Uh, I think the Veronica Carlson uh, Q&A was a nice way to end up bash we made one round of of the vendors after that and had a chance to see sam Irvin one more time and finally get a picture with him i think and uh, what you know what do you think of the end of, of veronica's q a i thought it was amazing that just that says a lot about her and her character and and the stories you hear about her it was it, yeah it was very touching to see that and yeah we went to the dealer's room a lot of people were packing up already so that kind of a 
ended quietly, I suppose, uh, which is just fine. Yeah, I think if you if you are ever planning to go to a, a monster bash, you've you've got to really plan on getting your stuff in Friday and Saturday. A lot of the stars are going to leave early. They're not going to be as readily available for Q and A's on that or for um, autographs on that last day. And a lot of them aren't there simply for the last day. So you need to plan accordingly. As you do with any convention, you kind of, you know, what do you really want to see? What's What what would you want to see if you can make it? But plan on getting your, your stuff done, especially your autographs done the first couple of days. Because Sunday, you know, a lot of them are, are leaving early. And, uh, and the vendors, too, I don't know. There was that one vendor selling DVDs, three for $20, that I don't know if, they were even there on the last day. I know that Pulp Fest was there on Saturday. They were not there Friday. Their boxes were, but they hadn't unboxed their stuff yet. I don't know if they, you know, maybe they unboxed late in the day Friday, but not when we went through, which was late in the afternoon. And they were already gone by Sunday. So a lot of the vendors, you know, they're only there for maybe a couple of days or they're definitely packing up early. So that's my little helpful hint if you if you plan on going to Monster Bash in October, or if you plan on going to the next Monster Bash next uh, June, well, I think that's about it for Monster Bash. We mentioned earlier we just spent some more time with friends after it was over, and then got up bright and early Monday and hit the road. Uh, let's take a quick break, and maybe I'll play the trailer for House of the Gorgon, and then we'll come back and talk about our radio shows. Sounds good. Upon them, you will surely die. House of the Gorgon. Why don't you let us alone? Get back on your train and leave us alone. Rumors circling around. Uh, mysterious happenings at night. Uh, strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstad. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. Starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness. What was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel. Malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you. Christopher Neal as Llewellyn, a man of faith locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. Just you out! 
Richard, this is all you now. I'll, I'll chime in here and there, but why don't you tell us about these two radio shows that we listen to? I'll be sure to tell you what I thought about them, but I, I really wasn't able to find much trivia. Like I said, I don't really have much of a history with old-time radio, so uh, educate us all, please. You know, I've got a history with old-time radio going back to 1979 when my dad came home from a business trip and he had a copy of the Abbott and Costello show with their famous Who's on First routine. It was a Radio Reruns was the name of the company. It was an audio cassette that ironically was on the table with all like the postcards and stuff at Monster Bash. People, whoever it was, brought about six old-time radio shows on audio cassette, and, and that particular cassette was there. I still have my cassette. That got me into old-time radio, and with American old-time radio... I mean, you can trace it back as far back as the late 1920s. Amos and Andy, a famous show in the 30s and 40s that might not be very politically correct in today's uh, world, but they they actually go back to the 1920s. They were originally called Sam and Henry. So 30s and 40s, though, is really when, uh, and 40s in particular is when radio was, was really hitting its stride here in the U.S., and really, it was it had to do with war, uh, World War II. A lot of radio shows were providing humor, and that's where everyone was getting their entertainment from. Obviously, before the days of television, a lot of people didn't have the money to go to the movies, but you know, everyone kind of hovered around their radio because that's where they could also get news on local war bond drives, local uh, and news actually. I mean, just news in general about the war. And so people were just glued to their radios. And by the 1950s, radio shows continued, but television uh, was coming into play. By the late 1940s, Milton Berle. Everyone wanted to watch Uncle Milty on TV. And so radio dramas kind of started becoming less and less. But they survived until 1962. Suspense being one of the most popular radio shows in the 40s was one of the last two shows that were still on radio in 1962. And after that, you know, American radio dramas didn't necessarily totally die out, but they became very far and few between. Um, There was a resurgence in the 70s. A lot of radio stations began playing the old shows. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater was very popular in the 1970s. And, you know, the new dramas are still being created today, but you just don't hear them on the radio. However, over in the UK, they were kind of a little later to the game with their radio dramas. They weren't as uh, prevalent in the 30s and 40s. And, of course, a lot of that had to do with the impact that the World War II had on London in particular and England. But their radio dramas have never really stopped. They, they continue to produce original radio dramas a lot of, of course, stuff is now produced. Big Finish, you know, is kind of carry that on into original radio dramas on um, CD and digital. But uh, BBC Radio continued to produce original radio dramas and still do. In fact, I think it's not too many years ago, they, they began producing a science fiction series called Journey into Space, 
which was a continuation of an incredibly popular show in the 1950s that ran from 53 to 58 over in the UK. Uh, And a lot of those have been released uh, on CD. A lot of the BBC sci-fi radio adaptations, they didn't have like shows necessarily like we did that ran for years and years, but they would adapt books or stories and would do like a four, five, six, seven part radio presentation as part of like a larger, you know, kind of time slot like Saturday nights at six as there's radio dramas. But it's not like, well, Saturday night at six o'clock, we got to listen to Suspense or The Shadow. But that's where they would play these different radio dramas with a variety of cast and uh, writers and adaptations of uh, whether it's original story or adaptations of classic stories or novels. And that's kind of where the two that we listened to kind of come into play. They really weren't part of a regular show, but were part of uh, just BBC Radio's ongoing love for radio drama. And the first one we listened to was called The Slide. The show itself, it was called the BBC Light Program, which again, not really a a show proper, but it's kind of like that was just what they referred to the time slot as. And you would hear a variety of radio dramas in that time slot. The Slide that we listened to was uh, a seven-part radio drama that aired from February 13th until March 27th in 1966. One uh, 25, 30-minute episode a week. Kind of think of like a Doctor Who story that back in the 60s and 70s, Doctor Who dramas lasted, you know, four to six episodes long, sometimes longer. That's kind of how these were structured. 25-minute format felt very, very similar to um, a Doctor Who drama from the uh, 60s or 70s. And there's a lot of reasons why, both because Doctor Who writers were involved in both of the shows that we listened to, especially with The Slide, because it was written by Victor Pemberton, who uh, originally submitted the idea for the story to uh, Doctor Who in 1964. It was rejected. It was then accepted as a radio serial in 1966 by Peter Bryant, who worked for the BBC at that time. He eventually became a producer of Doctor Who. And then later, Victor Pemberton would rewrite the story again for Doctor Who when Peter Bryant was the producer. And it became a 1968 six-part story called Fury from the Deep with Patrick Troughton as the second Doctor. Victor Pemberton also wrote uh, a 1976 story called Doctor Who and the Pescatons, which was an exclusive for album. It was a vinyl release that starred Tom Baker as the fourth Doctor. It was never played on uh, radio. Uh, I think it had, actually it may have been uh, played since then, but it was originally intended for a vinyl release only. So that's why if you ever listen to the slide and you're familiar with Doctor Who, I immediately was like, especially with this, my, my second or third time listening to it, I was picking up that this really sounded like a Doctor Who story to me. And essentially it was with just a few rewrites. Yeah, and I accuse you of picking these two because they have such connections to Doctor Who. And I think you just wanted to to spend an episode talking about Doctor Who's. I can tell you that I never knew that the second one had a a Doctor Who connection to it because I had never listened to it before. So I'll only take half the blame. I won't take full. So there were six or seven episodes in this one. Each had an individual episode title. 
They uh, produced by John Tideman, which I couldn't really find anything out on him. The sound effects, though, I wanted to talk about that because that's one thing with old-time radio dramas is the sound effects. You know, everything from the sound of, of walking foot, you know, foot on a on a you know floor to doors knocking to whatever you know the sound effects enhance an old-time radio drama or modern-day radio drama greatly and the sound effects for this were created by the bbc radiophonic workshop uh, which was created in 1958 to produce sound effects and music for bbc radio and television shows including uh, the original uh, late 1950s uh, television adaptation of uh, uh, quatermass in the pit as well as Doctor Who, and even were involved in the creation of the Doctor Who theme song. They closed in 1998, and I was shocked when I read this. I was like, I can't believe they almost did it again. The BBC didn't think anything of the extensive audio library that had been created, and they were going to destroy all of the audio uh, that had been worked on for, what, four decades. Thankfully, an employee hid the audio tapes away from the workers who were clearing out the building and eventually and i don't know how but eventually bbc realized well gosh maybe we should keep these unlike you know all of the tapes of doctor who and countless other bbc television shows they destroyed you'd think they would have learned by that point apparently they didn't uh but thankfully somebody saved it and the bbc did see that they needed to to preserve these classic uh, audio recordings and sound effects, and they did uh, catalog catalog them and um, digitize them. And thankfully, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop was reopened in in uh, 2009 and is still open today with kind of obviously modern touches and, and they're using different sound equipment. They're doing work once again for the BBC and even did some work on, I think, one of the early advertisements for the most recent season of Doctor Who to kind of do a little bit of a nostalgic throwback there. They did some work for it. What did you think about the presentation? If you're not a big radio well, fan, I mean... That's what I was going to say. In this day and age, it takes a lot of effort to listen to a, a radio presentation, I believe. This one in particular, now, the second one is different. You've got Peter Cushing, Vincent Price. You recognize their voices. It's clear who is talking and what their characters are. I had a little trouble with this one knowing who was who, basically. And sadly, one of the persons was, was he Hispanic? His name was Professor Joseph Gomez. You could tell him, but that's because he had an accent. Uh, A lot of the others, I just, I wasn't really sure. The story, I guess we should say, it's sort of like the blob, except uh, there's an earthquake in uh, southern England and this greenish-brown mud, they call it, comes up between the cracks and... Uh, I guess during the nighttime hours sort of creeps towards the, the a farmhouse that's there and then it threatens to go, you know, further. So it, it reminded me a lot of The Blob. It was hard for me to follow a little bit. Not that it was that complicated. Uh, and of course, a lot of time is spent figuring out how they're going to stop it. So that's, that's typical of some classic horror movies. You know, it kind of focuses on, well, how are we going to start this, stop this threat? Uh, it was okay. It it was entertaining at times. It, it sort of, in a way, it evokes War of the Worlds for me. 
which is a, a radio presentation that so clearly describes the events that are going on. And I felt like this did not do as good a job maybe of either describing the mud or, you know, like being there witnessing it and then conveying that to someone that's listening. I, I had some trouble with that. And I would agree with you, having listened to countless old-time radio shows, the, the, the one thing that the best old-time radio shows do is that the the script is kept simple, your cast is generally kept small. To help with the distinction of the characters, names are often repeated so to, as to help you know who the characters are. And I think that especially with... Uh, productions in, in uh, you know American radio, they're definitely thought into having distinctive voices for the different characters. I've listened to a lot of different shows, and y- you know, you get to know the characters because I mean, you can tell that characters that you know this this person this you know whether it's an accent, a certain inflection, the way that they say things, whatever the case may be, the ones that are often difficult to hear are the ones that are difficult to follow or the ones that the voices tend to blend or there's not it's not written in a way as to remind you of which character is and sometimes it's as simple as sometimes it's like you and I are talking and I and I will you know call you Jeff more often than than would be necessary if you're watching it you know you know on, on television or a movie I don't I wouldn't need to say your name Jeff all the time but you do that on a radio show that's something they didn't do well in the slide and I do agree with you that the story at seven episodes it's too long. Yeah, it's, I was it would say. have been better at four episodes, and that's why it made it reminded me of Doctor Who because sometimes Doctor Who did six part stories or even seven part stories, and oftentimes there's padding to to flesh the story out, and the story could easily be told in a shorter running time. And with today's audiences, um, it would be hard because today's audiences want. They want their story, and they want action, ding, 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 right after the other. And even modern Doctor Who goes typically 45, 50 minutes per episode. They don't do the long, drawn-out stories like they used to do because the format has changed and audiences have changed. This wouldn't necessarily be a good introduction to someone who is not into old-time radio, but it is a good story, and I think in the sense that if you like Doctor Who, if you like Quatermass, I think that you would appreciate because there's definitely a, a, a lot of the same tones that are present in this story. It needed about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes less running time. And I think it would have it would have gone at a, at, a, at a quicker pace and they could have told the story um, in a, in a four episode you know run, you know which would have been equal to about maybe a hundred minutes, 105 minutes running length would have been much better personally. As you said that you made reference to the cast and so, um, finding trivia on this is, is really hard, but there's a huge Doctor Who connection besides the fact that Victor Pemberton wrote it. Oh, I do want to say, Victor Pemberton, I think it possibly part of the the you know, the um, difficult to understand aspects of the story might very well be on Victor Pemberton because his story, Fury from the Deep, uh, does not exist in, in uh, print anymore. It's, it's a missing episode. There's a few... Uh, edited scenes that were found in Australia. It is a six-episode story that essentially takes the story of the slide and moves it to 
the ocean. And it has to do with basically like a, a seaweed, if I remember correctly, or, or something that basically is doing the same thing that the mud is doing. And I do recall it is a hard story to follow because it's an audio only now. And it hasn't been animated or anything. Maybe someday it will be, and that might help. But I've seen it with the listening to the original audio and seeing what's called telesnaps or pictures taken of the actual uh, TV presentation. And it is a story that kind of goes too long and is hard to follow at times. And considering that Victor Pemberton never wrote another formal story for Doctor Who, uh, other than, at least that I'm aware of, if, if I'm making a Doctor Who faux pas, I'll own up to it. But I think the only other thing he wrote was that Doctor Who and the, Pe- and the Pescatons, which in itself, you know, had a very, very short running time because it was just a vinyl record. I, so I think some of the confusion with this light has to be on Victor Pemberton as a writer, and maybe that's just his style. So owning up to the cast, you've got Roger Delgado is a huge Doctor Who connection. He played the character of Joseph. That's the one you said it was easy to hear. Yeah, his real name. I did not know this. He was born in, in England, but his real name was Roger Caesar Marius Bernard Delgado de Delgado Torres Castillo Roberto. Holy cow. Roger Delgado was his stage yes. name. So um, I just thought that was, I've never seen that. And if, you know, if that is a internet falsehood, you know, that's a heck of a one to come up with. But he did a lot of work on stage and TV and film. He was in Quatermass uh, on TV in 1955. He was a guest star on Danger Man, The Avengers, The Saint. He was in Hammer Films. He was in Terror of the Tongs with Christopher Lee. He was also in The Mummy Shroud. He was also in Road to Hong Kong with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. I just saw that not too long ago. But his biggest claim to fame was playing the character of the Master in eight episodes or eight stories of Doctor Who in uh, the early 1970s opposite the third Doctor, John Pertwee. He was a, a renegade Time Lord, and he was the first... Well, he was the second person from... Uh, the Time Lords that we saw besides the Doctor, and he was really the uh, an arch rival. He was a, he was the villain of the piece. He appeared on eight stories, he, including all the stories in uh, five episodes or five stories of one season. He was a big part of the John Pertwee era. He uh, died very suddenly on June eighteenth, nineteen seventy three, at the age of fifty five in a car accident in Turkey while filming a, a television miniseries. Sadly, he was going to be featured in what was going to be the kind of the final story of the following season, and that never happened. His death was a catalyst for several things that happened on the show. One actress had already decided to leave at the end of three seasons, but John Pertwee decided then that his fifth season would be his last, and he cites several reasons, but one being Roger Delgado's death, uh, because the master was such a big part of his era of the show. And then kind of a domino effect, the producer and the script editor both said that they were leaving as well. So his death was was really kind of the catalyst for an end of a particular era of the show, which is my favorite of the show. There's been a lot of different actors who have played the master over the years. Uh, I think Roger Delgado is by far the best. His his mannerisms that you kind of hear a little bit of in this in this radio drama come across even more so on on television as the master in uh, Doctor Who. The rest of the cast, there was a character of Hugh Deverall, played by Maurice Dunham. He was a British character actor, uh, did a lot of radio and television work. 
He did appear in a Doctor Who story called The Twin Dilemma with the sixth Doctor, Colin Baker. He was also in a 1993 Doctor Who audio drama called Paradise of Death, which had John Pertwee as the third Doctor. He also played famous um, British detective Rumpole, Rumpole of the Bailey. He did that in a radio series for BBC Radio from 94 to 99. Uh, He was in such films as Sink the Bismarck and Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines. He died uh, in 2002 at the age of 92. Miriam Margulies played the character of Mrs. Wilson, character actress known for a lot of her audio, TV, and film work. Uh, She appeared in Tales of the Unexpected television series. She was in Little Shop of Horrors in 1986. And she is most recently known for playing Professor Sprout, in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2. She is still alive at the age of 78. She is uh, an activist for the rights of Palestine as well as in the LGBT community. Hmm. She is still making a mark and is well known um, for in a variety of circles. And she, I believe she, I was reading the article, she uh, has been with her partner for many, many years who is a college professor on Indonesian studies, I think, and they have like four homes across Europe. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. That's really, I didn't really have anything else as far as trivia. It's really hard to find stuff on, on BBC radio dramas other than uh, this is out there for you to listen to if you want to uh, take a listen to it yourself. The audio was pretty good for 1966. Not as good as what we get with Aliens in the Mind. And uh, I think the cast is a little easier to differentiate in Aliens in the Mind. But if you're so inclined, take a listen to the slide, especially if you're a Doctor Who fan. Uh, it was released on CD in 2007. It's available on iTunes. You can also get it uh, currently for free on YouTube. So it's definitely out there for you to, to tune into and, and give it a shot if you're so inclined. And I actually found a bit of trivia. I thought you were going to go there when you talked about the sound effects being lost, but uh, I'm pretty much going to read this verbatim because I have no personal knowledge of this, but a number of years after the original broadcast of the slide, the BBC had a massive and incredibly ill-advised purge of their many archived recordings. The original master tapes were permanently destroyed. So this was then discovered later by Pimbleton, Pemberton himself because he had a copy that he had personally recorded off of the radio when it was broadcast. Did you run across anything like that? I did like not that? know any of that, but that you know, is very much the same way a lot of Doctor Who uh, still exists. It's the audio portions of the episodes that were thrown away by the BBC exist because people sat there with a tape recorder and recorded it off air. And those are the recordings that they have used and still use whenever they're putting out these new animated versions for DVD and Blu-ray. They're using those original audio recordings that were made by several fans back in the 60s. So... Yeah, and, and I guess he did donate it back to the BBC, and they digitally remastered it and released it. So that's kind of an interesting story how we were even able to listen to this. I got a copy of mine in the early 2000s from a Doctor Who fan at a time when it was not commercially available. So Victor Pemberton, at some point, if he had it, it got out there in the in the community, and it was available Um uh, and bootlegs for a while because of the Doctor Who connection. And so, um, yeah. And both of these, I guess, uh, the CDs you mentioned, is that called uh, the Classic Radio Sci-Fi Series? Yes. The, okay. Yeah. So the slide and 
uh, Aliens in the Mind were available on that series of CDs. Just for to be a, uh, a completist here, this particular show takes up 38 tracks on three CDs. It lasts three hours and 30 minutes. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's a lengthy one. Those are, are All those CDs, are, they're available on iTunes, and there was a lot of them, as I was going through today, to, to confirm it was still on iTunes. There's a lot of them I'm really interested in. Uh, the Journey into Space, there's two CD collections of the original 1950s sci-fi series that's available, as well as some other dramas, adaptation of The Time Machine, um, some original dramas. I believe Day of the Triffids is, is one of theirs that are out there as well. If you like audio drama, if you like Doctor Who, give the slide a chance. It's not perfect. Um, it's, it's a little long, but it's, it's a fun piece of, of history that well, was almost lost. Well, let's play a little clip from the next one, Aliens in the Mind, and then come back and talk about it. Co-starring Vincent Price as Curtis Mark and Peter Cushing as John Cornelius. On the remote Scottish Isle of Lewig, Lark and Cornelius are convinced that the death of their friend, Dr. Hugh Dexter, was no accident. From his research notes, they diagnose the island sickness as early symptoms of a strange genetic mutation affecting many of the island's inhabitants, turning them into zombies, blindly obeying orders from an unknown source. The key to the mystery seems to be an apparently simple-minded 18-year-old girl, Flora Keary, who saves them from burning to death in a fire that destroys Dr. Dexter's house, and with it, the housekeeper, Molly Kyle. Let it burn! No! No! We must go! And come it out! Do not move! Do not move! We must go! they go? Because I was telling them to stay. Why, Flora? Why? Because now Louis is mine. <laughs> Louis is mine. Okay, Aliens in the Mind. This was the first time... Uh, listen for me. I was going to say viewing, but the first time listen mm. for me. I've had it for a while... This is much different than the slide, if for no other reason it's because you've got Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. And before we dive into to the story proper, 
1977 was the release date. And of course, going with our tradition, what was happening in the UK in 1977? I know you'll be shocked to hear that Queen Elizabeth II was the <laughs> ruling monarch. <laughs> James Callaghan was the prime minister. Never heard of him. He didn't serve for very long. He served 1976 to 1979. He was succeeded by someone you and I do know, Margaret Thatcher. Manchester United, the far sports fans out there, which I know there must be some, won the uh, FA Cup for the fourth time, defeating Liverpool at Wembley Stadium. This was an interesting little tidbit about 1977 in the UK. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, his reign of terror continued in 1977. He killed five women that year and had an attack on a sixth who was able to uh, give an, uh, like a positive idea, I guess, eventually on what he looked like. He eventually killed 13 women between 1975 and 1980. He was caught in 1981, sentenced to life imprisonment, and he is still there, alive at the age of 73. Hmm. Color TVs outnumbered black and white TVs for the first time in the UK in 1977. Keeping in mind, color TV wasn't common in the UK until about 1970. Hmm. Doctor Who wasn't color until 1970, so they were a little behind the curve over in the UK compared to American television. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion was released for the first time in 1977, posthumously. I've never, I'm familiar with this, but I've never read anything from it. Science fiction comic, 2000 AD, launched in February. It, of course, was home and is still home, I guess, to Judge Dredd and is still published today with more than 2,000 issues. I've never, I don't think I've even seen a copy of that, but I know it's still very popular over in the UK. And Mm. I do know of the Judge Dredd character. I've never read any Judge Dredd, though. Have you? I've not read any, no. How about a little bit of music over in the UK in 1977? Fleetwood Mac released their still popular Rumors album featuring the songs Don't Stop and Go Your Own Way. The Sex Pistols released Never Mind the Bollocks, Here Come the Sex Pistols, and it debuted at number one on the UK album charts. Queen released News of the World and had a very popular chart-topping tune, We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions. Other popular songs of the day that year included... Knowing Me, Knowing You, and Name of the Game by ABBA, as well as How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. And this will come as a shock to some of you. David Soul was one of the most popular singers in the UK. He had a hit here in the States, a one-hit wonder with Don't Give Up On Us. That did go to number one in the UK. And he followed it up with another number one hit called Silver Lady and a number two hit called Going In With My Eyes Wide Open. David Soul was more popular on the music charts than Queen was that year. And that was about it for David Soul. <laughs> but he did have a period of popularity. He was more popular there than he was here. Go figure. As far as films go, Star Wars was screened for the first time in the UK on December 27th, 1977. Other films of the day included A Bridge Too Far, The People That Time Forgot, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, The Spy Who Loved Me, and uh, this is a Star Trek connection. Besides Beverly Washburn, there's a legit uh, Star Trek connection. Even doing British television or radio, I can do it. Spectre, which was a made-for-American TV pilot film starring Robert Culp, was actually released to theaters in the UK rather than television. 
It was, of course, written and produced by Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek fame as one of a long series of attempted pilots he did in the 70s to basically follow up on the success of Star Trek, and it never did happen. I've seen Spectre. Have you seen it? Oh, it's been years, 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 years. It's 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 not bad. It, it shows promise of what maybe could have been. It's kind of fun. I forget the actor who played alongside Robert Culp. It's, it's an American actor that I know was having a lot of problems with alcoholism at this time, and his performance definitely showed. And, and Jeff is actively typing. No, I know this off the top of my head. Are you perhaps talking about Gig Young? Yes. He was having uh, alcoholism problems at that point, and I believe he even died very young, not too long after Spectre, I believe. So, And I remember his performance kind of is a problem with Spectre. Uh, at least it was when I watched it. I, his, I liked Robert Culp at Gig Young. I think could have been one of the problems why Spectre didn't get picked up. In any case, it was a uh, UK movie theater release in 1977. John Hurt was in that also. Ah, uh, yeah. I it's I've got it. It's been a long time since I've seen it. it makes me kind of want to revisit it. <laughs> okay, Aliens in the Mind aired on BBC Four Radio in six parts from January second, nineteen seventy seven, until February sixth, nineteen seventy seven, and uh, stars as we said, Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. What were your initial thoughts of Aliens in the Mind? Oh, this was so much fun. Uh, Just the two of them and their banter and their relationship. It was really, really interesting and unique. I think you've probably got this somewhere, but they never really appeared in a movie proper where they had scenes interacting like they did in this, did they? No, they did not. Listening to this, it makes you wish somebody would have done that. I can't believe it wasn't done proper. I mean... They, they really didn't have a film like this, and gosh, they should have, because if they could have even done half of what they did in this radio drama on film, uh, it would have been a classic. Yeah. Now, that said, I, I think this tends to drag on a little long, also not quietly, quite as much as the slide, but it's such an interesting idea, and then I just think it's kind of stretched out, and it shifts really from like a, a science fiction sort of supernatural with these telepathic people that have been basically bred on this island into sort of a government conspiracy. They've infiltrated the, infiltrated the government, and that part gets a little bit dry. I think there doesn't seem to be really any urgency to it. Maybe if there had been a plot development where it's some type of race against time or, or something, maybe that would have made it a little more interesting. I kind of except for Price and Cushing, kind of lost interest towards the end. I Again, I agree. Uh, four parts would have been better running time for this. It easily ran about two episodes long. And again, the episodes run about 26, 27 minutes. So it ran about an hour longer than it should have. The best parts were the banter. And I, I guess you got to give it to writer Rene Bajenico. He wrote it based on an idea from Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes wrote several stories for Doctor Who. He's well-known amongst Doctor Who fans. Why Robert Holmes didn't write the full story, I don't know. And I don't know... I'm sitting here thinking, I was like, well, did they take this from a Doctor Who story? And I'm like, well, I mean, there's there's a few stories that deal with, like, mind control. But there's not a Doctor Who story that I'm familiar with that this would have been a direct 
adaptation from. So maybe it was Robert Holmes had the idea, and then and then the Vigenica Ghana took it and ran with it. I don't know. I don't know the story behind it. I wish I did. In any case, Robert Holmes was still alive at this time, so he could have written it. Bajenico has to get the credit because he, he unless you know Price or, or Cushing did a lot of ad libs, I, I, there was just so many little one-liners and, and the banter between the two of them is just a pure joy to listen to. Whatever deficiencies in the story are clearly present can be easily overlooked by the fact that, again, and here's a quote that I thought really sums it up. And it's a Radio Times, uh, which is a magazine that they do the TV Times, Radio Times, Radio Times. Jane Anderson wrote, and here's a quote. Cushing is the perfect gentleman investigator, while Price could be reading a tax return and it would still be gripping. It might be old, but this screams quality just as loudly as that howling wind. And that's exactly right. Price could be reading a tax return and you're going to be sitting there wondering what the next tax return is going to be. He's, he's that good. And, and Cushing just gets these little one-liners that kind of come underneath the breath. Um, it's just great. Absolutely. Yeah, and they play old friends, and that comes through, uh, you know, when they get back together many years later and haven't seen each other in years. It's You can tell they were friends growing up and had this great relationship. Very, very charming and, and entertaining. Yeah, Vincent Price plays a Professor Curtis Lark. And Peter Cushing plays John Cornelius. Really, they... Oh, gosh, you wish they would have done more. I mean, they obviously had some adventures in the past or after this. I wish somebody would have would have written something where we could have gotten more from these two. Oh, gosh, I could see these... I could have seen this as a, as a television series, you know? The adventure of the week with these guys would have been great. I think that's the one thing about this, that you come out thinking, I want more. Even though, as you said, you know, the, the story itself kind of meanders and, and goes on a little too long, it does leave you wanting more of, of these characters and more specifically of, of Price and Cushing. And unfortunately, we never got it. And we should say Cushing plays Dr. John, Corn- John Cornelius. He's a brain surgeon. And Price is Curtis Lark, who's a parapsychologist. So that in of itself, a brain surgeon and a parapsychologist on uh, on adventures where one you know probably is very much into science and one very much into the occult or uh, I, I think that's a a clever idea it would be nice to see more of their adventures like you said I'm repeating myself oh I, I yeah as I, I agree with you the rest of the cast did, did good they 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 it was easier I think to differentiate the characters in this one partially because the characters had more distinctive voices. You know, I do think that they referenced the characters' names a bit more. As I said, they, 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 they call some of these characters by name, uh, which helped you remember who the characters were or what they did maybe two episodes previous, which is the sign of a good writer who has the, the differences needed for radio drama. I don't know if this Rene Bajenico did any other radio work, but he obviously understood how to write for radio. It is different. You, you, you Yes, you have to have the basic story, but there's a different style. Much like writing for uh, television is different than a film or writing for a play is different than television. Um, you've got different styles and a different way to tell your story. And I think, I think they did a really good job with that in this one. I won't mention the rest of the cast because, again, I really couldn't find anything on, on them. I think they all did a good job, and I think they all helped... Tell the tell the story uh, really well, 
Aliens in the Mind, again, it's relatively easy to find. Uh, it was released on CD in that same BBC sci-fi series uh, in 2007. It's on iTunes. You can also uh, find it on archive.org. I could not find this slide there, but I could find this. And it, too, is also on YouTube. It was a little harder to find on YouTube, maybe because it's got Vincent Price or Peter Cushing, but it's out there as well. So you don't have to dig too far to, to find uh, a copy of it out there. And I, I, I strongly recommend that, that you check it out. I really, really enjoyed it. Like I said, it, it has me more interested in BBC radio drama, which admittedly is something I'm not really schooled on. I, I do know my American old-time radio drama, but I don't know as much about BBC radio drama. And I'm, I'm glad to see that there's actually a lot of these on iTunes. I'm going to do some search and see if I can find them on YouTube. Uh, I suspect that the, some of these other radio dramas produced um, in the 60s and 70s uh, as well as the, the vintage ones from the 50s, I think they'll probably be relatively easy to find. Radio dramas are a bit more forgiving when it comes to copyright as opposed to film or television. The quality tends to be a little easier on the ear unless unless it's too muffled. You can usually find good audio quality, whereas uh, sometimes grainier film presentations will detract from one's pleasure of watching a show, uh, television, or a movie. You don't always have that with radio drama. It's a little more forgiving. I did find something interesting. I wanted to know what Vincent Price and Peter Cushing were doing in 76, 77. This would have been recorded most likely in late 76 and then aired in early 77. Peter Cushing was busy. He was on Space 1999. He was on the New Avengers. He did Land of the Minotaur, Shockwaves, The Uncanny, a little indie film called Star Wars. <laughs> he was busy in 76 and 77. I found initially I was really surprised at how Vincent Price wasn't that busy, at least, you know, on TV or film. He was making guest appearances on the Donnie Marie show, The Muppet Show, Ellery Queen, The Bionic Woman. He recorded a version of Monster Mash that I don't think I've ever heard, hmm. but apparently he recorded one. He also appeared on the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. He narrated uh, The Butterfly Ball at the Royal Albert Hall. I have no idea what that is, but it's out there. Uh, Lindsay Wagner TV special. Then I figured out what he might have been doing at this time. Now, I know he was also very prolific uh, with cooking. He was also very involved in art. But he also, uh, in 1977, began performing as Oscar Wilde in Diversions and Delights, which is well-known amongst Vincent Price fans. And so I suspect that, that at least part of this time he would have been doing some preparations for that stage play that he eventually ended up touring uh, you know, across the United States, and I don't know, I'm sure, over in Europe. I don't know, did he do Diversions and Delights over in the UK? I don't recall. I know he did it across the United States. In any case, Vincent Price was uh, you know, not necessarily as busy in film as Peter Cushing was, but he was certainly uh, definitely busy on stage, and he would do Diversions and Delights for quite a few years after that. I, you know, From everything I understand, one of the crowning achievements of his career, and there's not a filmed version of it out there. There's audio versions, uh, and there is a, a few segments that he recreated for, for television, but uh, I, think he did a, I think he did a segment for the Dick Cavett Show, believe it or not, the audio version is out there, and it's something I've always wanted to listen to. In any case, 
Aliens in the Mind. Yeah, so you've got me intrigued now. In 1977, Vincent Price issued a version in the UK on EMI Records of Monster Mash. I think, it, and I'm seeing that it's readily available on YouTube, uh, we'll play that here between our before our next segment. Are we ready for that, or do we have more to say about Aliens you know, in the Mind? That's, that's all I've got to say. These, these radio dramas were... Uh, we don't have as much about them as our, our normal movies. For, you know, again, a variety of reasons, it's harder to find information on. I think uh, it was just something fun for us to listen to on our way back from yeah. Monster Bash, a little break from the regular format. I know I always enjoy a good radio drama, and I, I fear that the slide wasn't necessarily a good uh, introduction for you, but I'm glad that Aliens of the Mind was, was a fun one with uh, Price and Cushing. Definitely. All right, well, then here's Mr. Vincent Price with Monster Mash. Hey everybody, I feel like a real dummy, but yeah, Vincent Price recorded Monster Mash for the 1981 movie The Monster Club. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. He did the monster mash from my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast. The ghouls all came from their humble abodes to catch a joke from my electrodes. They did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. They did the monster mash. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rockin', all were diggin' the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the monster mesh. It was a graveyard smash. Caught on in a flash. They played the monster mesh. Out from his coffin, Drax's voice did ring. It seems he was troubled by just one thing. He opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvanian twist? It's now the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. It's now the monster mash. Now everything's cool, Drax a part of the band And might of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them Vincent sent you Now you can monster mash It was a graveyard smash It caught on in a flash Now you can monster mash Do the monster match, it won't hurt I promise 
welcome back. Let's whip through our regular features here at the end. We have, I think, Richard, we could talk about uh, that coaster on your table there, thinking we could do it in five minutes and it would suddenly be three hours. Uh, so it, we didn't intend this to run as long, but uh, let's go ahead and finish up in normal style. Let's talk about some home video releases in July. Uh, I'm going to just hit a couple of the highlights here. Scream Factory continues to do its uh, both classic black and white horror movies as well as its Hammer films. They keep coming out. A couple of highlights, though, on Jul July 9th, Mill Creek is actually releasing a steelbook of Mothra. Yeah. That will be fantastic. As well as Kino Lorber releasing Dead of Night on Blu-ray, which has not been available that I know of ever. No, that's that's definitely on my list. I have bumped that to the top of my wish list, and I'll be getting that in late July. Yep. On the 23rd is the second edition of the Universal Horror Collection. This one has Murders in the Zoo, The Mad Ghoul, The Mad Doctor of Market Street, and The Strange Case of Dr. Rx. Seems like I just got the first one a couple weeks ago. I had pre-ordered and it came in and uh, I need to check and see. I can't remember if I pre-ordered Volume 2. And I have not heard about a Volume 3 coming out. So They have to do a really deep dive <laughs> on, on stuff. But I, I am, you know... I'm probably going to pull the trigger uh, eventually on that volume two. I, I'm happy with what I've got in volume one. I know you know a lot of people will go with the Blu-ray and upgrade, but the copies I have of like uh, the Strange Case of Doctor Rx and Murder in the Zoo and what's the others the uh, Mad Ghoul, Mad Doctor of Market Street. Yeah, Mad Mad Ghoul. I've got a pretty good copy of the Mad Doctor of Market Street. I those I have bootleg copies of them from several years ago that are off of original film strips and so they're they're a little rough around the edges glad that i have them but i wouldn't mind seeing uh, a nice you know clearer copy of those those that never did get an official dvd release well no i take that back i think they did get a dvd release but they were tcm exclusives and they were pretty pricey and i never did pull the trigger on that because i just couldn't i couldn't I couldn't pull the trigger on that price. So the Blu-ray is going to be something that will be part of my collection eventually. Birthdays in July. This is an all-Scream Queen edition, except for one, which is Laird Kriegar. We talked about he was born July 28th in 1914. The rest of these, though, Scream Queens. Karen Black, July 1st, 1939. Gloria Stewart, July 4th, 1910. Janet Lee, July 6th, 1927. Mary Philbin. I guess, can you be a Scream Queen if you were in a silent movie? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, July 16th, 1902. Nan Gray, July 25th, 1918. And Susanna Lee, July 26th, 1945. Do I need to say what movies any of those were in, or are those all familiar names? Those are familiar names. Very good. I hope they are to most people. Anniversaries movies released in July. Again, we have a nice list of movies we've talked about before. The Island of Dr. Moreau, June 13th, 1977. Speaking of 1977. Alligator People, June 16th, 1959. Amityville Horror, July 27th, 1979. And Willard, July 30th, 1971. I also want to mention, it's just a tad over our time range, but Dressed to Kill, the Brian De Palma film, July 25th, 1980. I'll mention that in honor of Sam Irvin, who that's an early movie he worked on uh, and got to work with Angie Dickinson, Brian De Palma, 
and uh, and all of them. Mention that in his honor. For the TV Terror Guide, I do not know what's going to be on Svengoolie this month other than July 6th is Mr. Sardonicus. Have you heard any of the others for the month? I haven't, I haven't seen anything I know. We're recording this on the last Saturday of June. I know tonight is a first time on Svengoolie, or at least first time in many, many years. Uh, the Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, or Jekyll, they've done, I think... Three of the five movies this month have been new, which is kind of rare for summertime. So I would suspect that July is probably going to be uh, repeats. Although, Mr. Sardonicus, it's been a while since they've played that. Yeah, I, I haven't heard, so I don't know. Comet TV has been doing marathons on Sundays. Uh, two Sundays in a row, they played episodes of the Hammer House of Horror British television series. On July 4th, they're doing, and by the way, this may be in the past because I'm not sure when we'll get this posted, but uh, they're doing an Outer Limits marathon, but this, I think, is really cool. This is a marathon I could get into because they're showing original episodes followed by remakes of those episodes that existed in the Outer Limits series that ran in the 80s? 90s. 90s, okay. So that's kind of cool. I'm going to probably try to catch some of those. TCM is doing something really cool this month. July's a great month for TV. Every Tuesday night, they're doing Out of This World, a celebration of sci-fi movies. On July 2nd, it's early sci-fi, things like A Trip to the Moon and Metropolis. On the 9th, Frank Darabont is going to present movies from the 50s, Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds, Forbidden Planet. On the 16th, which I don't know if it's that actual date, but they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing with moon movies. So movies like Destination Moon. On the 23rd, they move into the 60s. We've got The Time Machine, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then on the 30th, the TCM premiere of Star Wars, A New Hope. Oh, wow. There will be people that will be upset, but I've, I've said, you know, Turner Classic Movies... What we grew up as kids, as watching classic movies, yes, those are still classics, but as much as we may hate to admit it, Star Wars is a classic film. It's 40-plus years old at this point. That's what was on Turner Classic Movies and, and AMC or whatever, uh, you know, before that. So, yeah, I, you know, maybe it's time. And I, yes, I, I prefer that most of the films be black and white and older, but I don't have a problem with some of these newer films creeping up every once in a while because Turner Classic Movies does it right. You know, this is something I just take us on a, on a just a quick side trip. Did you see that this past week Bob Dorian passed away? Yes. Bob Dorian was the Robert Osborne for AMC. When AMC was American Movie Classics, before Turner Classic Movies was around, uh, Bob Dorian was introducing films dating back to the late 1980s. Uh, eventually AMC changed gears they went more modern partially and mostly because Turner Classic Movies kind of overtook it as the go-to classic movie channel and Robert Osborne became the 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 main host that everyone talked about of course we lost him not too many years ago Uh, but Bob Dorian of course is someone I remember vividly in the 1990s watching AMC quite a bit I mean I used to watch AMC all the time uh, Saturday mornings, they would play the chapter serials and Laurel and Hardy. They would play all of the Blondie movies on Sunday mornings. My late wife, Jerry, and I watched Blondie every single Sunday. So 
Bob Darian to it to you know a generation was uh, synonymous with classic movies, and it was uh, sad to hear that we lost him this past week. I'm curious what version of Star Wars, not that there are drastically different versions, but, you know, as each video released, they tweaked it a little bit. So I'm wondering what they're going to play. I also don't mind that that's considered a classic. Some movies that they show on there, you wonder how they they term it as a classic. Um, but they're showing Close Encounters of the Third Kind the same night. Definitely, I consider a classic. And Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Wow. Okay. There's also another day in July on the 8th that is just an all-day marathon. It, it starts early in the morning with Scared to Death from 1947 and ends later that night with The Cremators from 1969. Not familiar with that, but that perhaps might be an example of one that they might be pushing to call a classic. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's hard to think of a movie called The Cremators being a classic. makes me want to record it, yes, though. I don't definitely. think I've ever seen it. So you said that's on the 8th. All yes, right. Mental yep. note taken. Yep. So that's it for that. Uh, Richard, tell us what you're up to in the world outside of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Um, well, you know, the uh, Summer Marks is On series is, is continuing, having a lot of fun with the Marx Brothers. Um as we speak, uh, we have wrapped up the Paramount Pictures films. We are saying goodbye to Zeppo. And from this point forward, it's just Groucho, Harpo, and Chico. And we're getting ready to dive into the MGM films. 1935's Night at the Opera is going to be starting off the month of July. So having a lot of fun with that and getting some good response. Um, I do believe that we're going to start diving into... Um, some Santo films that I'll be talking about uh, on the blog. Um, Carla loves Santo, and I picked up a few new Santo films and just ordered a few more. So uh, I don't I don't know my Santo as well as others, but I have fun uh, offering up my thoughts on Santo and the films. So looking forward to doing that. Got some stuff uh, in the mix for some recordings. Going to be doing the the July edition of the Mimiverse uh, audio cast. And going to be talking about Terror in the Wax Museum with Ray Milland. Uh, following up, the, the director of that, I can't remember his name, but um, he directed Arnold. Um, and I talked about that in the June episode. And, and um, I thought, well, I didn't realize that Terror in the Wax Museum was on Amazon Prime. And so we watched that the other night. And uh, also going to be doing some uh, stuff over for Dread Media. It's a matter of me sitting down and recording them. I think I probably mentioned the same titles a month ago, but uh, I'm still still going to be recording about the car and, and Blood Harvest. Uh, definitely, car is more classic than Blood Harvest is, but nonetheless, uh, eventually getting around to recording those for Dread Media. And uh, yeah, that's that's what's going on. What about you? Well, the blog is pretty busy. Uh, ClassicHorrors.club. Uh, I'm doing my movie of the week every Monday. I've started a new thing on Tuesday where I'm digging into a television series and reviewing one episode per week. I've been doing that Hammer House of Horror that Comet Marathon inspired me to do that. Dug up a new batch of headlines for Hump Day Headlines, a little game we play. And then on Friday, we do a internet version of our own uh, TV terror guide where um, I let everyone know what's coming up for the week. The most exciting thing, though, is, and if you, uh, I don't know if you follow these groups on Facebook, but we haven't talked about it a while, that Vincent Price book is finally getting ready to come out. They posted pictures of the cover. Uh, it's called Into the Velvet Darkness, A Celebration of Vincent Price. 
beautiful, beautiful color like all those books are. Uh, so it must be getting to the print stage, and uh, it'll be very exciting when that is finally released. That will have a spot on my shelf. Yes, it, I've got a couple things in there, including my childhood interview with Vincent Price, which at this point is very <laughs> embarrassing, but I can say I did it. So that's it. And I think that's it for our meeting. Let's call it to a close. Uh, we do need to say what we're doing next time. Do you remember the movies that we're doing? I do. I have oh, them written very down. good. I, I have them pulled up. Uh, so we, we people know what we're doing. We've already mentioned it. Uh, Nicholas Hatcher recommended it. And we love uh, people that get involved. So we're going to do his recommendation, Fay Ray. And normally when we focus on a star, we do something from the beginning of their career, the middle, and the end. Fay Ray's genre of film work took place within a matter of a couple years. So I don't know that we're doing something quite like that, but we did try to pick unique movies that maybe aren't talked about as much. So what what did we decide on? Okay, so normally we, we cover three films, and this time we're going to be kind of expanding and tweaking the format a little bit. We're going to talk about the horror films of Fay Ray. And we're going to be covering films basically in a three-year time span. We're going to be taking a look at Dr. X from 1932, The Most Dangerous Game, 1932, The Vampire Bat from 1933, Mystery of the Wax Museum from 33. We'll touch briefly on King Kong. I think King Kong has been talked about on a lot of other shows, but we certainly will give it a mention. And then uh, Black Moon from 34. And finally, The Clairvoyant from 1935. I think we'll talk about some of those films more than we will others. Some of the ones that, that you know tend to get talked about more, and, uh, maybe like King Kong or Mystery of the Wax Museum, we won't talk about as much. But covering multiple films, Fay Ray uh, died on August 8th, 2004, at the age of 96, so that's why we chose August. No, we're not going to be doing a five-hour podcast. Uh, who knows? Well, we say that now, but... Uh, the goal is to, to talk more about the films and maybe a little slightly more general with, you know, maybe not go as into the deep, deep dive as we do in some of the films. Um, some of them will, like I said, we'll talk about more than the others. Anyway, Fay Ray coming up in August. Let us just remind you very quickly to please call and leave us some feedback if you so desire at 616-649-CLUB. That's 649-2582. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I just checked as we were wrapping up here and don't have any new reviews to report, Richard. Well, you know, I'm not too worried about that. You nah. know, we, we continue to get new members and uh, we did leave our, our calling card there at Monster Bash. So... Uh, hopefully we've got some new listeners going to be coming up over the next few weeks. You know, we continue to reach out through Facebook and, and let people know what we're doing. And we do want to hear from you. If there are any people from Monster Bash that are listening because you picked up our, our card there, welcome. And uh, please feel free to participate in the conversation. Okay, that's really it. Let's close. The song is called Aliens in the Mind. It's by Alessandro Gio from the 2018 release Modern CPU which is available on iTunes. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care, everyone. <laughs>